Hello and welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I'm your co-host, Mike. Yeah. And we're here with episode 106 this week. And it's a keyboard feature this week. We've got lots of piano-based and other oddities. Lots of keyboard instruments. It's almost like the keyboard uh, museum this week. We have the, uh, yeah, we've got almost everything. And uh, it's getting pretty warm here in Japan. After a snowy winter this weekend, you could almost go out with short sleeves on. Indeed, I went out with short sleeves just uh, yesterday, and I sneezed all the way through because I seem to have uh, allergies. (laughs) And I'm still suffering from that now, so there may be a lot of edits to today's program. You're looking like you're going to sneeze right there. So I I just went uh, through town, like, sneezing all over the place. I, I may take a trip to uh, Sneezy Town during this podcast, so uh, if I'm missing, just um, that's where I am, just so you know. All right, and before we get into all of our keyboard features, I want to remind everyone that in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we're going to talk about. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. It's all the music in one place on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming platform. You can follow us there at username Adult Music Podcast and get the playlists and the podcast all in one place. Uh, also, if you can't see the full description or recording list on your app and the links aren't active, you can always come over to our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there. And if you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. And tell a friend. Word of mouth helps get us new listeners. Any music-obsessed friends you may have, those are the kind of people we're looking for. If you also give us a ranking, take a minute to write a short review, that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, and it's another way we can grow our audience. You can also come over follow us on our Facebook page to get extra info, more new releases throughout the week. There's a lot that came out this week in jazz that I put up there. You can leave a message or comment there, and you can see our interaction with the artists if they respond to our links up to their recordings. And you can also get in touch directly by email if you'd like. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And we got a message this week from yeah. someone who's checked out our podcast, John Krosnick. And oh, cool. he's at Stanford University. So we've got a high level listener. That's uh, in California, Stanford University. Is he, he's a professor there? He's a professor. And he plays drums in a couple ensembles. And he asked if we would, you know, talk about his music. And they have two albums that came out in 2021. And, you know, generally we try to keep it within a few months of right. new releases. But I told him I would check them out. And they're really good recordings. And so I want to actually recommend them to the listeners. So he's got two groups. One group is the Charged Particles. And this recording is live at the Baked Potato. Play the music of Michael Brecker. And you got to have your uh, stuff together to play Michael Brecker's music. And they do. It's a really good recording. And that's on Summit Records. Yeah, not not only that, but if you're... um making albums of Michael Brecker's music, you're automatically got Russ's ear. I just want yeah, to mention that. For sure. And the other one is the Lunar Octet, and this is uh, some Latin jazz, and it's also really good. It's called Convergence, also on Summit Records. Now, this sounds like my kind of ensemble. Yeah, Boy. they're both really yeah. good. Uh, yeah. So I'll put the information and also links to streaming at the end of the episode list there for listeners' convenience. And by all means, uh, if you guys have more new music coming out in the future john uh get in touch again and uh give us a heads up yeah if it's like that i mean i think we give it a listen and talk about it that'd be cool be really good yeah also we're sharing our audience with some other podcasts you can check out Uh, i've got tom gauker's podcast something came from baltimore jazz blues and r&b interviews 
He's got some interesting stuff happening every week there. He's got a pretty active Facebook account. You can look that up there as well. Famous Interviews in Neon Jazz. That's by Joe Domino, who interviews artists, musicians, and writers. And then Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard. And that's a podcast that looks at several versions of the same jazz standard each week. And they play little bits of each one and discuss the history and the different versions of that. Mike's been checking that one out. And you can uh, find descriptions and links for all of those at the end of the podcast. podcast description as well so if you're looking for some more music podcasts during the week do check those out yeah i've I've been enjoying that one too i'm getting a little bit of an education about the history of uh some jazz tunes that uh, i've been hearing all my life but don't really know much about it's uh pretty cool yeah these guys guys are really knowledgeable because uh you know we at least get a few every episode here that pop up in the jazz uh, section so it's kind of nice to know the history and uh, also see what people have done with them over the you know course of jazz history. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um, my my things. I we we often talked about this. I love the uh, poetic titles that a lot of jazz traditional jazz tunes have. And one and one example would be softly as in a morning sunrise, right. like a classic. And I never knew it had words until I actually heard. Uh, I, I forgot who it was. Now you see this is this is why I need that <laughs> that podcast. But uh, yeah, I was I was pretty surprised to know that it actually had words. I just figured it was a a tune. You know. Right. All right, so where are we? Are we uh, ready to go? Any other announcements? I think that's it for now. I've got a few other interesting tidbits, but I'll relate them to the material yeah, some, <laughs> that comes up. some good uh, stuff coming stuff, up. Yeah. Okay, so we are now going to enter the Keyboard Museum, and I'm kind of wondering, first of all, have you ever seen the movie Voyage to Italy by uh, Rossellini, uh, Roberto Rossellini? Did you ever see this movie with Ingrid Bergman? It's mm. a movie about, it's an Italian movie, I think there's an English version of it too, about a, a married couple and they go to Naples and they uh, they go to the, uh, you know, the uh, museum, which I've kind of been to, the uh, sort of mm-hmm. archaeological museum, See, and they see all these like ancient statues from the ancient world in Rome and it kind of like, you know, moves them deeply and kind of like they wind up kind of fighting and I guess uh, separating at the oh. end of the movie. They really separate, but they kind of grow a little more distant because of that. So I, I was kind of thinking about that because of all these like artifacts in the museum. And we have some um, keyboard instruments on this first album. This album is called Perpetuum by the, let's call him a keyboardist, Anthony Romaniuk. He's Australian. And uh, this is on the Alpha label. Now this has a this album has a theme, Perpetuum. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's chosen a program of all pieces that have like a perpetual motion in them. Now, in some cases, this is really... Mm. what drives the piece but in other cases it's just constant arpeggios that just sort of you know sort of create a bed that the rest of the melodies are happening to and this is his second album the first one was called bells and i am a so bell sounds and keyboard music and i am a big fan of bells and that's one of the reasons why i um love the piano so much is because of its uh, decaying quality you know it's so to me it reminds me of bells here in japan we have bells we have the Mm. the buddhist bells bells. They're, they're really deep and low and they sustain forever i mean it's it, they're really incredible but i really love the um the european church bells like especially at noon when if you're if you're in a big city like paris or mm-hmm. rome or florence like all the bells in the city go off and mm-hmm. i just love that sound it kind of makes me wish i were there i want to say about this one before you get into it this will become apparent after people understand what's going on but if you haven't listened to this yet this is not the kind of album you just throw on in the background because you right. won't get anything out of it you really need to find the notes for it or you know what we're going to talk about here because the collection of works is around this theme of motion perpetual yeah. but each track is performed on a different instrument right for a specific reason 
And so in order to understand and appreciate it, you kind of need to know what those instruments are and why he chose them uh, for each piece. And this right. is real, really getting at the heart of uh, adult music. Uh, I guess, so, yeah. It's an yeah. interesting program, I have to say. I've yeah, never. Sure. It's one of these concepts that I've never seen in classical music. I, as a classical music spokesperson, let's say, I'm trying to mm -hmm. get away from the whole... Um, the, the whole snobby past of, of classical yeah. music. I really think we should be listening to this as normal music. Now, it takes a little bit of understanding to really get into it, but you can listen to it casually too and not really yeah. know what's going on. But that's really, to me, an entry point. You really want to learn more and more and more. Anyway, the interesting thing about this is um, that Romania, well, I, I had mentioned his Bells album, but this one's about, it's called Perpetuum. And he thought of this one because um, this theme, because he said that he remembers in his childhood that uh, he noticed the communal bliss that would overtake an audience at concerts. And it was usually produced by works with hypnotic, trance-like, and ongoing rhythms. And he wanted to find music embodying that quality for this album. Now, I had this experience, too. It was really interesting. We're going to hear, there's a Philip Glass on this on this album, but I, I heard uh, Philip Glass's uh, opera, Akhenaten, which is about uh, the Egyptian um, pharaoh hmm. Akhenaten, who uh, introduced the idea of a of a single god, like monotheism, hmm. into like ancient Egypt. This is long before Christianity, Buddhism, all that, all of that. Uh, you know, when uh, the when everything was polytheistic, this was in his earlier period. So it was all those like repeating arpeggios that kind of drive you crazy. And I never really liked this. It just kind of sounded like piano lessons to me. But uh, when I heard this opera, what I got was these um, arpeggios. They suddenly change like harmony, like one note will change, and then okay. you mm -hmm. know, three minutes later, another note will change, and just this slow change kind of gave the idea of like time passing by, like the centuries. Like it, it had some kind of epic hmm. kind of quality to it. And then I got it. You know, I sort of said, okay, this is one thing that you can do. Right. With this sort of music, Glass's music doesn't really sound like that as much anymore. But then it was just kind of very, kind of. He didn't really use timbral color in those days either. It was just like the the piano sound, and it was just mm. these repeating tones, and it would just subtly change, and it, it really put you in a state of um, hypnosis. And I remember that from uh, even hearing that opera. It was it was quite an experience. Anyway, in today's culture, we you know we're living here in uh, the twenty uh, first century now. Boy, I still. <laughs> the 20th century wasn't so great, but I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it was better than the 21st century. At least the late 20th century it was really fun. The, the later years in today's culture, anything with a repetitive beat, so that means all pop music basically, uh, has this trance-inducing quality. If you've ever been to a rock concert, you've probably experienced it. It really brings the crowd together. Mm -hmm. Also, music that's part of the ancient musical traditions have it, uh, particularly with those with a ritualistic or sacred context. Even if you think about, even not even Western music, but if you go to uh, other cultures, you, yeah. you'll hear a lot of repetitive beats and uh, this kind of hypnotic quality like brings the uh, community together in some kind of um, ritual way. Romaniuk, in his notes, also says that improvisation has been included in this album, both as a chaos agent, you know, I guess to break <laughs> up the uh, repeating uh, patterns, and in order to lend his own quasi-compositional voice to the tapestry. He thinks the improvisational spirit in a session infuses the composed works with freedom and spontaneity. It's an interesting idea. I think mm. that's probably true. Okay, and he really does kind of stick to the uh, whole idea of perpetual motion here, even in pieces where you wouldn't really think yeah. uh, it would be. And the first piece he plays on this is uh, by our own American composer, John Adams, <laughs> not the second president, 
the composer, <laughs> uh, who's still who's still alive. He's contemporary. And this is China Gates. And I've been hearing this piece, I think, since the – when did it come out? I'm pretty sure I've heard this in the, in the 1980s or at least the 1990s. I've heard this played before uh, by other pianists. It's fairly popular. But Romaniuk uh, takes a more careful, precise, and slow approach. When I've heard this, it's always been faster than it is here. And uh, Romaniuk's approach, to be honest, pays off. All the beautiful tones of this piece are clearly heard on an excellently clear recording. I should mention he's playing the piano, the, the modern grand piano yeah. on this piece. It's uh, got this nice bright tone. And there's something about the holding back of the tempo that adds uh, a sort of hypnotic quality to the piece. The piece is reminiscent of chiming bells. Think about Debussy's uh, piano piece, uh, Pagodas, if you if you know that one. Or just mm. any a bell piece. This could have gone on as previous album too but it is it's just kind of these repeating motions think of a Balinese gamelan that's Indonesia that's not China but even so it's kind of the same sort of mm. idea I think anyway there's a nice performance of that next Eric Satie pièce froide which means cold pieces I love Satie he, he had a way of uh, <laughs> he had a knack for naming his pieces and I love these three they're actually very similar to each other and uh, Romaniuk, I think, rather wisely uh, separated them on this album and plays each one of the three of them on a different keyboard yeah. instrument. Uh, this one is um, on the forte piano, the first one, Danse de Travers 1, number one. On the forte piano, this is the uh, piano that was in uh, in action from around uh, Beethoven's time. So it actually predates Satie, but he's going to play these on different uh, keyboard instruments. So he's not really too concerned about historical authenticity here. Anyway, on this one, I like the variety of sounds that the different keyboard instruments get. And this one's more kind of matte sounding than the uh, piano that we heard in the previous track. And when, by matte, I mean like it doesn't have a gloss or a shine to it. It's just kind of mm. it absorbs the light, let's say, or yeah, whatever, if you know what I mean. It, I think of the sound of the forte piano as kind of brown, you know, sort of like a like a floor that doesn't have a shine or something yeah, like that. it's a duller tone. Uh, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't shimmer out. Yeah, and it's quite a contrast from the previous track, which had this real chiming, glowing sort of uh, sound to it. Anyway, Romania captures the early 20th century quality of this piece well in his playing, as well as his, in his choice of instrument. Okay, so this works well on the forte piano, as it turns out. The third piece is Johann Sebastian Bach, our <laughs> uh, good friend. This is arranged by Romania himself. This is uh, from uh, Preludes Book One which there's no such thing. So he's taken this from, I don't know where he got this from, really. Prelude in E major, BW 1006A. He plays this on the Yamaha CP80. <laughs> is this an instrument you're familiar with? Yes. What's funny in the notes is that he says, playing it on this brings it into our modern era. <laughs> but <laughs> this was uh, an instrument. Maybe maybe 40 years ago <laughs> brought it into, I don't know. It was only yeah. made from 1976 to 1985. And if you All haven't right, heard it yeah. yet, it rather has a... Uh, electric piano type of sound to it. But I think right. it was designed to be able to compete in a mix with, you know, amplified instruments and guitars and have that presence on stage. It does have a rather booming quality <laughs> to it, which <laughs> yeah. is very interesting, though. I had mentioned here that he, um, it sounds like he uh, plugged this instrument directly into the soundboard because it's really present. Yeah, so yeah. right on the surface of the speaker. It just sounds like it's coming out of the... Uh, I think he mentioned the... Um, kind of um, springy and fast action quality this instrument has. And he takes advantage of that here. It's very sprightly and springy. Oh, he certainly does. <laughs> but it's interesting because the tone on, see, well, you'll see the tone is kind of a funny 
dullness to yeah yeah you'll see if you listen you have to mm. listen, have to go listen, to the yeah. uh the link and listen to this okay he also he adds his own harmonies to this work too so it's not really bach as you he's arranged this okay mm. people have done that before for a violin work that was a uh, transcribed for the piano actually i think this is a transcription of some other work i'm not really it's sure which one it is suite. isn't it which one the lute suite, suite. Okay, four yeah. in e major yeah okay yeah, and uh, he has a, the appropriate light touch for this piece. There's no pedal, so it's very uh, kind of staccato, and you're hearing all the attacks, which I think is always good in Bach. Mm. And there are a few accents in this. It's an enjoyable interpretation. The articulation is all very clear. And the bass, as you would expect from this instrument, is particularly full-sounding. Yeah. <laughs> so if you have a subwoofer, you got to get an earful of bass or a, maybe a chest full of it, too. Track four. Penguin Cafe Orchestra composition. This is a Simon Jeffs, I think, um, mm. ensemble, or he's the uh, writer. I don't know. But uh, Romano arranged this. This is where the title track comes from, Perpetuum Mobile. And this is on the piano. Now, again, this is really something for us because we grew up in the era when the uh, Penguin Cafe Orchestra were together. And they were kind of considered to be a bit avant-garde at the time because they played uh, various so-called uh, world music traditions and they would kind of combine them all mm. uh, with a largely Western instrumentation. I mean, these days, we're kind of into this, this is such a terrible word, it, whenever it's used, not even just in music, purity. Nothing is pure, okay? <laughs> I just want to say that right now. There's no such thing, okay? It's, it's a word we use as a reference point. But uh, anyway, so th this whole idea that, say, Indian music can only be Indian or something like that uh, has become the, the the norm now. Okay, so like Africans playing African mm -hmm. music, that sort of thing. But combining the uh, forms is what the uh, Penguin Cafe Orchestra did. And we liked them in the age. Well, I don't know about me. I didn't really listen to them. But uh, they were pretty popular at the time. To be honest, this doesn't sound much different. He plays this on the piano, by the way, mm. does Romaniuk. And this oddly doesn't sound much different in timbre uh, than China Gates, the John Adams piece. It's kind of similar, really. It has more in the way of separate motivic lines. And basically, we're hearing the same repeating figure sequenced upward and downward on the piano. I don't think this is really one of their more exciting pieces, but I don't know. And I thought it was kind of repetitive. The next work, it thrilled me to see this name because I love the music of George Ligeti, the Hungarian 20th century composer. Let me give you a little music history lesson here. After World War II, classical composers decided to completely alienate their audiences <laughs> by... Um, Pretty, you know, there, there were other, there were people like Stravinsky who continued in his uh, like neoclassical or highly rhythmic style, but uh, a lot of people went the Schoenberg route and uh, engaged in twelve tone music, and uh, nobody wanted to hear that because it all kind of sounded similar. I mean, there were some geniuses who really made it work for them, but uh, most of it was pretty disposable. Anyway, part of the idea, if you think about World War II, the whole discovery of the Holocaust and th things like this made people not want to write music with any emotion anymore. Because if you were going to write music with emotion, if it was going to be honest, it was just going to be kind of horrifying in a way. Mm. You could really write happy music. So people wrote intellectual music, and that was what uh, happens with the with 12-tone music. Uh, Ligeti found a way around this. He wrote music that was had a bit of a sense of humor to it. It was highly intellectual still, but uh, there's a lot of humor in it too. So uh, that was another way to get around the uh, the whole anti-romantic uh, concept that came after World War II. We're, we're now out of that, thankfully, with the, the fall of the Soviet Union, all these um, East European 
you know, or former Soviet uh, countries have really renewed music with this wonderful, like, uh, music with a, a religious vibe to it. And it's very still, and it's really something we really need these days. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad they're there. Anyway, back to Ligeti. He wrote his piano etudes uh, towards the end of his life. They A lot of them were written, I think he started them in the 1990s, and they went all the way up to around, uh, to his death in 2006. He didn't finish the third book, or he did, and then he died. There were only four of these in his third book of them. Anyway, this is uh, etude number four, I'm guessing from book one, uh, Fanfares. And this is for the piano. You really couldn't play this on any other instrument. He has odder harmony than anything we've heard previously. He's very much a 20th century composer. And the perpetual motion comes from the constantly repeating staccato line in the background as blocky chords are kind of dropped around it. You can, If you play the piano and you listen to this, you can hear how hard this is yeah. to play. Just getting your hands around in these kind yeah, of the patterns. The other hand yeah. is constantly dancing around. You kind of hear that the, hand's yeah, the hands are constantly... You have this in Ravel, too, where one hand is playing over the other, like you have to kind of squeeze mm. your fingers in between the black keys to get some of these lines going. Anyway, there is a comic quality to the piece, as I mentioned, as there often is in Ligeti, that I think is well captured here by the attention to the rhythm rather than by any interpretative indulgence. You can't really interpret Ligeti. You just have to play it like it is on the page, and it comes off really well here. And I have to say, just the fact that Romano can play this piece puts him in a pretty high level of pianist. Mm. Okay, now that said, the next piece is uh, Schubert, uh, impromptu, very famous piece, Deutsche 899, number three in G-flat major. And this is played on the forte piano, which would have been appropriate to Schubert's time. So we've got that not shiny, matte, dull sort of quality to the instrument. This is probably the most famous work on the entire program. A lot of pianists play it even when they're studying, although this is a kind of tough piece, really for students. The piece uh, allowed uh, Romaniuk to use the moderator register on the uh, graph forte piano that he's playing here. To be honest, I don't know what that is. I've never played a forte piano, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I don't know what that is. And it results in a delicate and warm timbral wash. I find this uh, refreshing to hear on the forte piano with its total lack of gloss. This generally comes across with a lot of gloss on the piano when people play it there. I wish more pianists would record these on the forte piano. My issue with this, though, is Romaniuk plays this pretty straight, and this often has a hard-on-sleeve quality when other pianists play it. You know, the, the romantics, they kind of they get this really nice sort mm-hmm. of emotive quality out of, out of it. This is going to be an interpretation that will have uh, listeners taking sides. If you're like a big fan of uh, a specific recording of this work by a famous pianist, you're probably not going to like this much. It's pretty straightforwardly played, with attention given, of course, to the program's theme, the perpetual rhythm of the bass line, right? So he's really focusing on that. He's not really focusing on making you, drawing you in with the melody here. And he plays it kind of straight, and that doesn't always work in, this is kind of on the edge of classical and romantic music. Schubert was really just before the romantic period, along with Beethoven. Beethoven kind of had one foot in each. Track seven, Shadings, is an improvisation, and this has repeated notes and alternating hand patterns on the Fazioli F228 piano. Now, this is a pretty aggressive uh, repeating note attack, and there's quite a blur of harmony as the pedal is used to get a harmonic blur, but the attack is well discernible throughout. Next, Henry Purcell. Scholars like to call him Henry Purcell now, but I don't know. Anyway, yeah. I'm just used to Purcell. A New Ground. ZT, what is this, 682? And this is on the harpsichord. The first time we're hearing the harpsichord on this recording. This is a very different technique from 
the piano, the forte piano. And uh, I have to say, Romaniuk uh, is pretty impressive. He can yeah. uh, switch between these instruments. Harpsichord is more wrist action, whereas the piano is more fingers and upper arm strength and things like that, shoulders, things like that. But the harpsichord is all wrist. It's You're bouncing up and down, basically, to, to play this. The first time we're hearing the uh, harpsichord here, it's got a silvery chiming sound on this uh, recording. Uh, with a thin-sounding right-hand tone. The bass is pretty heavy. <laughs> I don't know. This must be a big instrument. But it's well marked by Romaniuk. Focus is given to the continuing bass line and middle perpetual motion line. So as not to... Uh, I said perpetual mobile line. So as uh, not... It's not the most expressive performance again. The very appealing melody could have done with some shaping. Instead, the steady gliding rhythm that uh, Romaniuk gives it is really what the focus is here. It's a, it's a gliding rhythm. It's enjoyable, mm. though. Yeah, nice sounding instrument. It's a nice sounding instrument, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, a lot of the appeal of this album, by the way, is in the timbre or this, the yeah. sound quality of each of these different instruments. It's always, it's constantly a surprise. Track nine, Eric Satie. This is the Pièce Roide number two, Danse de Travers 2. And this one's played on the Yamaha CP80, which I'm sure Satie would have liked. I'm going to take a guess here. Yeah. He also mentions in the notes that um, in some cases uh, he has chosen to invert what the instrument is naturally suited to. Okay. And I'm going to take a guess. That that's kind of the, this is one of the ones he's referring to. Maybe we'll find out. But it was just really hard to imagine this piece on this instrument. And so it, it's yeah. an interesting choice. So I'm wondering if it's against type uh, by purpose here. Yeah, this isn't a soundboard that world that Satie would have imagined. Although he was a quirky composer, so he probably <laughs> would have uh, appreciated it. Anyway, this is interesting because the, uh, the Yamaha keyboard gets a kind of woodblock sound in the bass at the beginning. It's kind of... Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, the piece works well on this instrument, despite the fact that it was written like a hundred, like eighty years before uh, you know this instrument came into existence, or seventy years. The recording of the Yamaha makes it sound like it was plugged into the mixing uh, console again. Track ten, Parabola, is an improvisation, and this is played on a virginal, hmm. which is sort of a lighter sounding harpsichord. This is the Musilar virginal, which I guess is a specific one. This improvisation spends a little time in each register of the Musilar Virginal, showing off the different sounds of the different registers, alternating between minor and major chords as if deciding whether to be melancholic or optimistic. Uh, we hmm. haven't heard this instrument yet. It's more delicate than the harpsichord, but not quite as quiet as the clavichord we heard last week. Mm -mm. It is pretty quiet, though. I called it dainty and enchanting. Yeah, okay. Hmm. You can imagine like uh, being seduced by a woman playing the Virginal in the... 18th century. At least I can. <laughs> anyway, it's a pretty enchanting improvisation, I have to say, with a light dance quality to it, uh, really belying its title, Parabola. I really don't know why he um, <laughs> called it this. But anyway, it's a, a very Baroque era sounding, and perhaps the sound of the instrument causes that interpretation that I'm giving it. I don't know. Parabola sounds a little like a more modern thing, even though mm. I think the ancient Greeks probably found it. Anyway, track 11. Igor Stravinsky, 20th century composer. This is on the piano. It's a, the first movement of his piano sonata. This has a post-World War II machine-like quality, which was very popular yep. in the early 20th century. You hear a lot of works like this. And has neoclassical harmonies, which makes it kind of appealing. 
to listen to. A reminder plays this with a rather pleasing lack of percussive quality. It's often played like somebody's hammering on the instrument. Uh, but here, it kind of sounds like he's, if he's using hammers, he's using hammers with like a fuzzy top on them. They sound like malleted, <laughs> I guess. More than metallically hammered. Yeah, it's played with a fairly light touch, which is unusual. So he's actually uh, gone against the expectations here. And I rather appreciated that. I would have liked to have heard the other two movements, actually. But of course, they're not perpetual motion, so we didn't <laughs> on this program. Track 12, Johann Sebastian Bach, Toccata in E minor on the harpsichord. So a pretty traditional um, interpretation, although I have to say, Romaniuk, he, he, he doesn't ever interpret a work according to expectations, and this is the case here. Each section has an element of perpetual motion in this, uh, but the fugue that it ends with has an uninterrupted stream of runs and chordal figures is most aligned with the program. This uh, piece starts out really fast. I was kind of surprised by this. Uh, the harpsichord has a clear crystalline chiming sound, part of which is Romaniuk's evenness and attack. He's got a really nice even mm. kind of scale. He's got even scales. I'm pretty impressed by that too. Uh, it's impressive that he can play all these keyboard instruments with such sensitivity to their sound worlds. Uh, the work unfolds in various sections, and Romaniuk uses different sounds Judging by the album cover, he's got like a one-layered keyboard on the album cover. I'm guessing that's the instrument he's playing here. And he's probably got a stop on it so he can adjust uh, the volume from like one string to two strings or something like that to make it louder. Um, I've always played a harpsichord. It's the only one I've ever... I never played one of those two manual ones. Like one is right, two yeah. strings and one is one string. So one is quiet, one's loud. The other ones, the one... You can change the uh, volume on it. There's this little... It has a name. I don't know what it is, but this is kind of this wood block in the instrument, if you pull it out, it's kind of like on an organ where it changes the sound. Mm. And I think it moves the whole action over so that it's plucking two strings instead of one. I'm guessing he's got something like that here. Let's see. At 331, 3 minutes, 31 seconds, we hear a perpetual motion fugue spoken of above. So if you want to skip right to the fugue, that's where to go. And it's really fast. Fugues are hard to play. I have to say, mm. he's got quite a technique, this guy. Uh, impressive performance as we're showered with harpsichord tones. You ever imagine like instead, if you're in the shower, like instead of um, water coming out of the uh, the shower head, chiming harpsichord tones came out? I don't know. Would that uh, would that cleanse you in some way? I don't know. I'm just kind of fantasizing. Might be good for my it. scalp. I don't know. Yeah. Good for my ears, <laughs> maybe. Anyway, uh, Philip Glass. We mentioned him at the beginning, track 13. A2 number two. And this is played on the piano. Now, the only other time I've ever heard this piece is when um, our good, uh, well, he's not our friend, but he's a pianist we really like. Vikigor Olofsson played this mm. on his Philip Glass album, which uh, came out long before we started this podcast. Anyway, the constant motion of the ostinato, of, of course, in Philip Glass brings a sense of calm. And this is true of a lot of Glass's music. It's a jolt as we hear the piano timbre again in this arpeggiated work with tricky changing time signatures, often a, a Philip Glass uh, hallmark. He takes this slowly, because I've heard this played fairly quickly, with light pedal for that cloud it creates between attacks and to sustain the sparse bass notes. There are a lot of like, they're almost like pedal organ notes and he has to sort of sustain them. So he hits them pretty hard and holds them. The sound fills out more as the piece goes on and Romaniuk uses a heavier touch for the chords heard from the third minute on. So this kind of gains in volume as it goes. Track 14, Robert Schumann, Fassingschwag aus Wien. 
This mm. is uh, number four. This a, it's a multi-movement work. This is the intermezzo. And this is played on the forte piano. Again, appropriate. Well, maybe not. Schumann, uh, the Arard piano had been uh, invented. That's still a light-sounding piano. But uh, I guess that would be considered a forte piano these days. Anyway, there's a darkening of sound on this. The instrument blunts the drama of the piece a bit. Romaniuk accentuates the perpetual motion again, as in the Schubert impromptu above, and loses the emotiveness of the piece by doing so. He plays these very straight. There's no rubato. There's no real expressive um, qualities given to the melody. And this is, I don't, I don't want to say that this is Romaniuk's style, but it's the style he's using on this album. And I have to say, I'd rather hear those expressive qualities, but he wants to keep these pieces going, accentuating their perpetuum mobile quality, I suspect. Track 15, one of my favorites of all time, uh, Maurice Ravel, the prelude from Le Tombeau de Couperin. Now, I love all of the Tombeau de Couperin pieces. This is the uh, first one. It's interesting to hear this piece with its <laughs> variety of texture in this album, but it is an uninterrupted piece. Now, Romania gets a nice ring to the treble in this piece. His articulation mm. is always discernible, especially in the descending figure. The tempo is a bit on the uh, slow side, the measured side. It's a good performance, uh, fitting in with the program well, but it comes across as a bit too carefully played. Uh, some of the sparkling magic of this piece is missing in this performance, but it is nice. Track 16, an anonymous work upon La Mire. This is played on the virginal again, the Musalar virginal. It's a modern sounding work from the 16th century. The virginal here actually sounds rather heavy, it's probably more closely recorded than it was when we heard it earlier. Uh, the piece has a repeating bass line with filigree work at the top, which sounds a bit too mechanical to my ear. But again, that's probably the point. Track 17, Dmitry Shostakovich, Prelude in A minor, number 2, Opus 87. We heard this before when um, oh Igor Levitt played it on that uh, hmm. album with that uh, that with the Shostakovich Preludes and Fugues, which he uh, coupled with that unbearable... He's <laughs> who's composer I don't remember anymore. Jeez. Anyway, yeah, the, the homage to Shostakovich. Right. I can't remember the composer now. Anyway, just as well, maybe. Uh, a blur of downward arpeggios and obscure harmonies in this. Uh, flurries of arpeggios are heard in this high-speed piece. There's very little pedal used, making the technique even more impressive. Uh, Romania plays this as layers of waves that break off and start again at the end point. It's kind of reminded me of a wave machine. You ever have one of those wave machines that <laughs> yeah. goes back and forth? It kind of, it's like a musical version of that. Track 18, an improvisation upon Upon La Mire is the name of this. This yeah. is played on the Yamaha, yeah. which is an interesting choice again. Uh, Romaniuk found the uh, baseline of Upon La Mire too inviting to pass up the opportunity to improvise on. He does that here. The improv that Romaniuk comes up with has a popular type of jazzy feel to it. Mm, I thought so. Yeah. Track 19, oh, a piece that a lot of us uh, piano students played, Beethoven, Piano Sedano number 17, Opus 31, number 2, the finale, the Perpetual Mobile finale to the uh, Tempest Sonata. This one often gets isolated by uh, piano teachers for their students to play because it just kind of, once it starts, it just keeps going. Uh, it kind of drives me crazy when people play one movement of a multi-movement work. It's something <laughs> that... Uh, I've kind of bridled against. I figure, you know, there's all this contrast in the three movements. You want to hear all of that. That's part of the piece. But lots of piano students, as I said, play this movement. So I'm used to hearing just this. This is the Tempest Sonata's final movement. 
Uh, Romaniuk emphasizes the perpetual motion of the piece and doesn't really make the material ebb and flow. As do uh, many piano students, they don't really make it ebb and flow either. <laughs> but professional pianists do. The mad sound that the forte piano, which is what we're hearing here, brings made me hear this familiar movement with new ears. But here I'm afraid Romaniuk isn't the most expressive of pianists, at least not on this album. He could probably play it a different way if he wanted to. But again, he's emphasizing the perpetual mobile quality. There's a lot of expression in this movement that goes by the wayside so that we'll focus on the constant waves of arpeggio-driven motion. Eric Satie, Piazza number three. That's a travail three. This is on the piano this time, uh, which is the way we usually hear it. Mm. Uh, it was a good idea to uh, disperse these three pieces throughout the album, as I said, and to play them on different instruments. Because as we realize now, all three of them are kind of similar sounding. They really don't sound that much different from each other, really. The piece comes across in the amiable way the other two do, and uh, they're very unassuming works. All right, and then the grand finale, track 21, Johann Hieronymus Capsberger, with an arrangement by Romaniuk himself, Toccata Arpeggiata. And this one uses the, uh, the Prophet <laughs> Rev 2 synthesizer to generate the arpeggios. Now, those of us who grew up in the 80s are very familiar yep. with this instrument from popular music. I think this is the first time since the 80s that I've even heard it. So what he does is he generates the uh, arpeggio patterns. It, it kind of sounds like a, a waveform on, on a screen that's been kind of <laughs> converted into sound, really. And then he sort of plays the piano on top of that. So we hear the synth arpeggios right away. Uh, they sound like they're from another world than the rest of the album. Uh, again, mm-hmm. probably plugged directly into the mixing console. There was a real like presence in the room of this instrument. Uh, the piano is played in its treble range only, and the sound is bright and sounds close. The sound of the Prophet Synth put me right back in the 1980s, <laughs> right there with uh, Cindy Lauper, having fun. <laughs> anyway, it was an interesting experiment to end the album with. It was fun. Okay. I think if you're going to listen to this album, you don't want to approach it as a snob. You want to kind of approach it as, you know, this, as a, you don't want to be a discerning classical listener for this. You want to lay back and enjoy it and just kind of let it, uh, let the different sounds just sort of um, interest you. Um, I liked listening to this, to be honest. Um, The various keyboard instruments used made the constant perpetual motion of the pieces more listenable. If this was all one instrument playing music like this, it would have driven me crazy. But uh, I liked his approach here. Uh, Romaniuk has a remarkable sensitivity for the attack and sound words of all of these instruments. And when I say the attack, I mean there are different techniques required to play the older instruments. The piano and the harpsichord are not the same technique. And that is no small talent. This guy's got a lot of it. He doesn't really do keyboard magic, at least not on this album. Several of these pieces, especially the romantic ones, provide opportunities for that. But he just kind of focuses on the perpetual motion. So he's not really very expressive on this album. The Bach works and the um, the older har- the Baroque works don't really require too much of that, nor does the Ligeti or Glass or things like that. It's a real hodgepodge of piano works from different <laughs> you know, points in musical history. So that was interesting too, to have all of them, all of these this music history together on one album. This could be an enjoyable discovery for fans of the keyboard. I would uh, recommend this. And if you like this, you'd want to go back and hear his uh, earlier album, Bells, which is also pretty interesting. Yeah, I thought this was a good adult music choice. Just yeah. as we often form our own episode themes, uh, here's a collection of works around a theme. 
motion. But you need to, as I mentioned at the beginning, you need the notes and your full attention to appreciate what's happening here in terms of approach, interpretation. Well, you just need us telling you what's happening. Now that you've heard this, you can go listen to it yeah. and you'll be more informed. An instrument choice. Actually, as the notes are laid out, you've got to be looking around on different pages to pull all the information together. But yeah, anyway, don't true. just throw this on uh, the playlist while you fold the laundry or something or you <laughs> miss out on what's going on. I found it engaging, a bit daring, and sometimes defying of expectation, but the end result is to make you re-examine the music from very old works to modern by hearing them all in a new way, and it was very interesting. So uh, I like the whole approach and concept uh, that he put together here. Yeah, you had mentioned the ironing earlier. I don't think this music kind of stays in the background. If, like, if you're ironing, you're not really paying attention, right? You're just kind of letting it. Yeah, exactly. It. This is sounds that'll grab your attention, basically, and hmm. take you yeah, away from what sure. you're doing. All right, so we took forever to talk about that, but I think it was worth it. Anyway, next we have another rather unusual program, and this is on the Hyperion label, which means you're not going to be able to sample. You're only going to be able to sample this from the Hyperion site. You can't hear the entire tracks unless you come to my house. If you happen to be in Japan, give us a uh, <laughs> give us a send us an email. Maybe I'll invite you over if I if I find you respectable enough. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I don't know who listens to us. What's a that Groucho Marx joke, I wouldn't have anybody, I wouldn't belong to a club that would have someone <laughs> would have like me as, as a member. member. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't invite anybody to my house that's anything like me, is basically <laughs> what it comes down to. Anyway, this is uh, Harpsichord Concertos by Bohuslav Martinu, Hans Krasa, and you got to get the guy's name, Victor, is it Victor? Victor Kalabis, played by Mahan Esfahani, a harpsichordist who we're rather a fan yeah. of ever since he put out his um, album of CPE Bach harpsichord concertos on Hyperion many, many years ago. This is uh, He's accompanied by the Prague Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Alexander Liebreich. And as I said, this is on the Hyperion label, one of my favorite labels, perhaps my favorite label, because so many of my uh, favorite pianists are on it, but one that for some reason won't put there music on streaming. I have to buy all of these CDs and I'm happy to do so, but my listeners can't just listen to the piece. Anyway, we have three Czech composers on this, all from the 20th century, and they're all composing for the harpsichord. You might wonder yeah. why that would be. Well, the, the reason is different for all of them. Esfahani himself wrote the booklet notes and he doesn't mention why they did, but he, he kind of does in Martin News piece. And I'm going to try to tease that reason out here. You know, I, I asked some questions about this. Were they commissions? Was the timbre of the harpsichord something people were interested in at the time? And there was also a Poulenc's uh, Concert Champetre, which also used the harpsichord. It was a harpsichord concerto. Nesfahani acknowledges that many think of the instrument as an outsider. I think that's, um, we, we kind of think of it now as like something for Baroque music, yeah. but uh, as something that was going to come back in to be um, part of like uh, a modern composition. Yeah, I think that's true. And there's a good reason for it too, because orchestras got a lot bigger and louder and the harpsichord is not a loud instrument. Mm. And I'm going to kind of give uh, my talk about this away at the beginning. That's going to be a bit of a problem on this album as far as like orchestral balance goes. Yeah, especially on this Martinu, because what surprised me, well, lots of things surprised me about it too, but with the piano in there with the harpsichord yeah. a lot too, yeah. That was odd, but the fact that the harpsichord is much quieter is actually going to 
work to this piece's advantage, and I'll explain why when I get there, even though it's, it's kind of odd sounding. Esfani acknowledges that you know, okay, they think of the, the instrument as an outsider, but I would like to think this would be the case then, that it is an outsider at this time. Anyway, we have three fascinating works here from the past. Two are from the 1930s and one's from 1975, the Calibus one. So 20th century harpsichord works, I'd like to know more about the genre and we'll learn a bit by listening. Now, Boslav Martinu, a composer who I really like, this is his Concerto for Harpsichord and Small Orchestra, composed in 1935. Martinu himself was an outsider. Now, Esfahani had mentioned that the, um, the harpsichord itself was kind of seen as an outsider. So Martinu, he was a polytotalist among the conservatives and a tonalist among the avant-garde. So you want to think of uh, Einstein. He he kind of he said something about like if he discovered relativity, uh, he's Swiss, but the Germans will call him German. The, the, the Swiss will consider him to be Swiss. But if his uh, theory had failed, he said the Germans, the, the Swiss would call him German and the <laughs> Germans would call him Jewish. That, that's an Einstein quote. That's not me. Anyway. So Montanu, he didn't fit in, basically. He was his own man. And that's a great thing now. But at the time, yeah. when you're trying to like, you know, make your career, that becomes a really hard thing. The harpsichord being an outsider instrument at the time might have attracted him. And that could be the reason. In his music, he tried to reinvent music from within structures whose resemblance to old forms does not hide his instinctive approach to deconstructing tonality. So in other words, what that means is he would use like older structures, but he wouldn't write in the harmony that those structures would make you think that you're familiar with in those structures. And in this case, the structure he's using is a concerto grosso, which is from the 18th century. This is Baroque style. And that's probably why he chose the harpsichord or why he uh, used the concerto grosso in this case, because he's writing it for a harpsichord. Now, if you think about what a concerto grosso does, you have the full orchestra playing, and then you'll have a solo instrument and everything else will quiet around it. And then when the uh, Concerto Grosso comes back in, it'll always play the same theme and uh, it'll be a lot louder than the solo instruments. That happens here too, except that it's really exaggerated. And I, I don't really know that it works so well, but we'll talk about that. The drive to reinvent music within the structure produces a startling range of emotional states, according to Esfahani's notes, and a sense of irony. I, I could hear that. Mm-hmm. Irony was a big thing in the 20th century music. Think of Mahler. He uses irony a lot. And finely etched characterizations that all amount to wit. I guess it's the Concerto Grosso influence that led him to consider the harpsichord here. First movement, Poco Allegro. This starts out with a really odd folk-like sound. When I say folk-like, I mean Central European folk music. The harpsichord is clearly boosted in the sound. It's a lot louder than you would think. I can't even imagine what this would sound like live. And the, the <laughs> orchestra would have to really be on its toes to you know not mm. cover the harpsichord completely. That said, the orchestra is pretty loud comparatively, even so, in this situation. So you do get a sense of the discrepancy between the power of the orchestra and the very quiet sound of the harpsichord. The harpsichord also has like a thin tone to it, and it doesn't match the body of the orchestral sound gets. So there's really extreme contrast in this. But again, we're in that Concerto Grosso sort of um, element, so it's acceptable here. You, you understand why it, it's like that. Uh, theme two is more gentle and romantic. It starts about at about the one minute and 30 second mark. It's a total change from the active opening. You'll notice it when you hear it. 
And Martinu's whole concerto grosso approach is audible here once you're aware of it. So if you don't know what a concerto grosso is, go and listen to one of the Brandenburg concertos or maybe one of the Handel concerto grossos or the, the Corelli ones and you'll sort of get the idea. Or, or Vivaldi for all that matter. The orchestra bursts in like a tutti while the harpsichord acts as the solo instrument. Well, it is. The orchestra, by the way, includes a piano, as Russ said, and we really rarely <laughs> hear the piano and harpsichord together. It's odd. <laughs> I think it's kind of like hearing like a like a car in a spaceship, you know? <laughs> or maybe, I don't know. Strange. They just don't seem to go together here. But again, it's really quirky. The harpsichord gets a lot of space in the second and third minutes to play by himself. So the volume between full orchestra and solo harpsichord is heavily marked. And around the four-minute mark, you can hear a Baroque-like concerto grosso theme. Uh, the orchestra propels the rhythm forward, but the harpsichord sort of breaks it up when it comes in. Second movement, Adagio, starts with a solo harpsichord playing an unwinding theme. The orchestra sounds thick when it comes in, despite being pared down to a flute melody and strings. There's a piano, too, playing a repeating downward figure. Again, the concerto grosso format is discernible, with the orchestra picking up on what the harpsichord plays and repeating elements of it. And I should mention that uh, Esfahani does a lot to make the harpsichord's part interesting, as he would. He's a very creative player, which is one of the reasons that we both really like him. Mm. He kind of delves into the music and tries to shape it in rather interesting ways. The third movement, Allegretto, has a motor rhythm. So here we are back in the <laughs> the previous uh, Romaniaca recording, in a way. As in a Baroque concerto, they often had those motor rhythms in the third movements. But there's nothing Baroque about the themes in this particular movement. The piano has a large part to play in the thematic material. The piano, that is, not the harpsichord, okay? <laughs> we hear the harpsichord at about a minute and 10 seconds in, playing the same rhythm. And uh, it's very busy in its figuration. And this is something that's going to come out on this recording. Esfahani, he's playing at a high speed, and he has a lot of stamina as a player because he's able to uh, – he's constantly playing in some of these pieces, and he doesn't slacken at all. It's, it's pretty amazing. I feel like he's uh, pushing the tempo a bit in this particular uh, movement. It sounds like he's playing with everything he's worth while the orchestra effortlessly keeps up its material. Yeah. So he's got to really struggle to keep up with them, I guess. It doesn't sound like he's struggling, though. I don't want to make it sound like uh, there's that. But there is tension between the uh, harpsichord and the orchestra. Uh, he stands out throughout the work, but he's especially noteworthy in this movement. Uh, the orchestra is loud. When I say that, he stands out throughout the three movements. The orchestra is loud throughout the work, and the basses come across as exceptionally rich. Esfahani stays busy for the majority of the 6 minutes and 34 seconds of the movement, and he's very impressive, as he will be throughout this program. Now, I'm actually a very big fan of Martinu's music, but this wasn't really one of my favorite works of his, although I guess maybe I'll like it more if I listen to it a few more times. Hmm. I found it rather odd and not in a really rev revelatory way, but I don't know. Maybe it'll grow on me. The fourth and fifth tracks are uh, work by Hans Krasa, a camera musique for harpsichord and seven instruments from 1936. Now, Krasa was one of the more successful composers of his era. And then uh, 1942 came. He was uh, brought to Theresienstadt, which was a forced labor camp established by the Nazi SS, which nevertheless had a rich cultural life due to the number of talented inmates there. But it was really a holding uh, kind of place uh, for Auschwitz. And uh, that's where Krasa was sent and executed um, mm. in 1944. So one of the great talents of his era, really, of his uh, period, and uh, his life was ended early. 
Uh, the Kammermusik was written in 1936 when Krasso was at the height of his public reputation. He was Czech Jewish, basically. Okay, the first movement, uh, Bevegt, has an interesting opening with a thick-sounding cello line playing, answered by the thinner-sounding harpsichord. The cello has a big role in the opening of the movement. Winds are also prominent, playing in harmony, then contrapuntally when the cello's theme winds out. It, it is, after all, a, a chamber symphony or, or a chamber uh, music work. At a minute 57 seconds, there's an interesting brass and harpsichord juxtaposition that makes the harpsichord's trill sound like some kind of an alarm or phone ringing. <laughs> it caught my attention. A more um, Central European folk-like theme is heard at about the 2 minute and 20 second mark. Then we get bubbling wind sound accompanying afterwards. Again, the recording produces a rich bass sound, especially when the bass bow low in their range. And that's great to hear, except that it really contrasts heavily with the harpsichord. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure about the balance here. The orchestra at the four-minute mark is recorded really close. The bassoon blaring through. Uh, it's enjoyable for its presence. Again, I'm not sure about the overall balance. The orchestra perhaps could uh, have been more distant, but then the harpsichord would be inaudible because he'd be distant too. Uh, the harpsichord plays an ostinato figure as the orchestra comment in the fifth minute, bass notes bursting out of the texture. Um, I really love the harsh last chord of the movement uh, played by high brass. It's ear splitting in a satisfying way. Does that make sense to you? Ear splitting <laughs> in a satisfying way? Well, if you love music, it would. <laughs> I, I remember like playing a bar talk piece and there was this really harsh chord I had a friend run into the room really excited saying what is that <laughs> you just like the harsh sound anyway the second movement and the last movement Ser Ruhig this movement is based on a rather popular song that Krasa had written some years before for a play it's extremely romantic in the theme and to be honest I thought it was a bit syrupy <laughs> there's a bit of, of the uh, jazz ballad yeah jazz influenced in the harmonies here it's a, got a jazz ballad orchestra, orchestration in the strings, a 1930s jazz ballad. Think Misty, I guess, or something like that. At a minute and 11 seconds, the uh, material turns more popular in a Central European way. At a minute and 32 seconds, we finally hear the harpsichord playing a repeating chord as the cello plays a theme over it. The harpsichord also adds right-hand thematic material himself, and I love the reedy bassoon sound at the 2 minute and 10 second mark. All right, basically, this movement seems to proceed as various scenes started by the orchestra and then commented on by the harpsichord. Droning basses accompany a foreboding harpsichord theme at the four-minute mark, and the piece ends rather sullenly with a low flute melody punctuated by pizzicato bass. The last work, and the longest one on the album, is by Victor Calabis, Concerto for Harpsichord and String Orchestra, Opus 42, written in 1975. Now, this work is really personal to Esfahani because um, he was the last student of Victor Kalabis's wife. Hmm. So uh, this is sort of a work that's, I guess, close to his heart. It probably brings him back to those times. The piece was also dedicated to, uh, to her uh, by Kalabis himself. Anyway, the first movement, Allegro Leggero, starts with a ticking set of chords on creaky high strings. I really, This really hmm. does set up. An interesting uh, sound right at the beginning. It kind of draws you in. They're matching the harpsichord's timbre, the strings are. Notice the harpsichord's subtle entry, almost. It's it's really uh, good writing. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed this, the opening for this work. I like the way, in general, the string orchestra's timbre 
matches the harpsichords. It's all got a silvery quality to it, and silvery is probably a good way to describe this whole movement's timbre. Remember, it's a string orchestra. The harpsichord engages in a lot of circling figuration, and his part is pretty busy. And once he comes in, he's constantly playing. And again, this is a very impressive performance by Esfahani. At the 2 minute and 20 second marks, he ends his long section with trills. Leaping appoggiatura figures follow in the harpsichord. Sprays of arpeggiated material are heard, or is heard, at the 3 minute and 40 second mark in the harpsichord with emphatic two-note statements from the orchestra. This changes to melting, silvery, descending string lines over the busy harpsichord. Esfahani being put through his paces technically as the soloist here, even though he's not always in the spotlight. While the orchestra's playing, listen to what he's doing. It's really Mm. amazing, really. He's constantly being made to work, let's say. The piece sounds like it takes a lot of stamina. At 5 minutes and 30 seconds, there's a cadenza, and the harpsichord indulges in this silvery tone with a lot of unharmonized notes ringing out softly. This harpsichord seems to get quite a bit of sustain compared to others I've heard. Maybe it's because it's just recorded really closely. Uh, Listen to the uh, 5 minute 30 second to 6 minute 30 second mark to the cadenza. And I imagine this must be recorded very close. Then we hear chords and the not as loud is this production trickery. Anyway, the movement ends on a sustained chord. Second movement, Andante. Again, this has a silver color. This is the color I associate with this whole piece. So there's a silvery-toned viola. I'm guessing that's a viola. Uh, Starts this out with a rather romantic, pleading melody, and shimmering strings answer it. It's actually quite lovely and appealing. The harpsichord enters in the second minute with chords, which the high violins harmonize over. There's a contrapuntal cello melody. It's got a really odd, enchanting harmony from the harpsichord after the 3 minute 30 second mark. The harpsichord gets a quiet chiming sound after 3 minutes and 50 seconds. It has broken up chords. There are some loud, powerful interjections from the orchestra. Basically, the harpsichord plays slow solo material, and the orchestra occasionally adds harmonic color. Oddly, by the end, the harpsichord and the strings change places, where the harpsichord is banging out chords and a solo violin plays sweetly in the high end. Listen from 7 minutes on for that. Now, I want to mention... This is a very inventive piece so far, and the third movement will continue that. This starts Allegro Vivo. It's got a rushing string theme, and it's syncopated. The harpsichord comes in almost immediately with busy figuration. It really takes over for a while with a machine-like repeating patterns. At the 2 minute and 40 second mark, the harpsichord slows down for some more emphatically stated material, which the strings respond to with brooding legato lines. This entire section broods, very different from the opening Allegro Vivo. It goes all the way to the sixth minute, where we hear crashing chords on the harpsichord and quiet high fragments on the violins. By the seventh minute, the speed picks up again, with the harpsichord's line slowly morphing into a fast trill while the strings play a Central European type of traditional dance. The rhythm breaks up in the ninth minute, and the material sounds more fragmentary. By the 10th minute, the harpsichord is tolling out chords while the strings play fragmentary phrases, chiming appoggiaturas in the harpsichord in the piece, along with a sustained high violin tone. Very inventive piece and probably the highlight of the album, I would say. It's really different. It sounds really unique to me. So the sound quality of this album is very good, but I'm not sure about the balance. What I mean by the sound quality is good. It's very clear, but the balance is kind of odd. I, I guess it would be, given that the harpsichord is a solo instrument with uh, varying bodies of uh, string, string orchestras or <laughs> full orchestras. 
Uh, it could be a result of the score, but I feel like the producer and engineer placed the orchestra too close in order to make the harpsichord audible. It creates extreme contrast that the orchestral detail is almost intimately heard, but I'm not sure. Still, the sound we're hearing is clearly produced uh, the way the producer wanted it to sound, so you'll have to judge for yourself. There's no really problem with the recording. I think the producer wanted it to sound like this, but I don't know that this is going to please everybody as far as sound balance goes. Getting the volume set right was a challenge. I had this turned up loud so I could get the detail, but that occasionally led to the mass orchestra blasting out of the speakers. <laughs> That's Fahadi, like in that Max L kind of ad where you had the speaker <laughs> yeah. kind of blowing the guy's clothes back, right? Esfahani himself is quite the virtuosic player. Uh, I've heard him play technically challenging works before, but here he's in the spotlight for a long time, and he's got stamina as well as technique. That I didn't know, so I'm hearing that for the first time here. The entire program is interesting and worth a listen, especially the unknown-to-me Calibus work that ends the program. I like the silvery quality of the orchestration and harpsichord and the rather unique emotional areas this work delves into. And I'm wondering if there are any separate tracks or mics for the harpsichord and orchestra in that piece. Anyway, you're in for quite an enjoyable adventure with this album, I would say. It's an adventure it is. It's not really straightforward music. And I think uh, I think you should uh, go on that adventure. Think of yourself as Indiana Jones and <laughs> go into this piece and discover these, these new things for us, I guess. Yeah, it was an unusual sort of journey with the harpsichord. You know, we defied expectations in the first recording with the choice of instruments. And the way the harpsichord is used in all these pieces is really unusual and interesting. Uh, I'm going to go the other way. My, the Martin is my favorite here. Oh, interesting. I, I, got, I have to hear it again, really, is what it comes down to. I enjoyed the oddity of the sort of earlier era form and interesting use of the harpsichord. And then with the piano, which I wasn't expecting <laughs> at all. and uh, But I enjoyed the, the pieces. The Krasa was, you know, kind of unique too in the instrumentation with this kind of small uh, ensemble and then that it got jazzy. I wasn't really ready for that. The, um, I, I'll have to listen to the Calabese. I got kind of worn out by the end of it. Understandable. See, I heard this one separately from the other mm, two. Okay. I did them in two nights. So I yeah. got, went to this one fresh. Yeah. It was... It's really dense, and the harm harmonies were a little bit of a tough to chew on. Well, they were, but the timbre was interesting, and they were just odd combinations. Yeah. Like I was really interested in his uh, whole sound yeah, world. It's all really. very unique, though. But you maybe want to, yeah, it probably would be best to break up the middle piece. The crossover is just the two movements, so it's shorter. The other ones, though, you might want to section off and listen to independently. Yeah, the Calavis, the ending piece is uh, as long as the uh, first two together, really. Right. It's a half an hour piece, so it's pretty involved. Mm. Yeah, but something I didn't know, uh, you know, with yeah. these modern works of harpsichord, all coming from Czech Republic, uh, I guess, you know, former Czechoslovakia. And uh, we're going to hear some Czech in jazz later oh. this evening, so hang on we for will. that. And next week, more <laughs> Czech, too. So, uh, oh, next week, too. Put lots of Czechs on the next list. Week. Okay, yeah. yeah. All right. Are we going to call that podcast Check It Out with the season? Because <laughs> it's such an obvious joke and we, we, we just have to do it. We do that with this title somehow. You know, we've, we've already angered the French with our <laughs> fanciful French music titles. Now we'll have to do that to the Czech yeah. Republic too now. Anyway. Watch the download soar. 
<laughs> the outrage. <laughs> well, that's if, if hey, if outrage is going to get us downloads, I'm all for it. That's all <laughs> You're I'm going to try say. something. Yeah, <laughs> something's got to do it. Anyway, our third uh, classical work is uh, by a composer that we talked about last year, and uh, yeah. this is uh, another uh, in that series, Nikolai Kapustin, Piano Concerto Number no. Five, Concerto Opus One Hundred Four, and Sinfonietta Opus Forty Nine by the pianist Frank Dupree. I think he's German. And the Rundfunk Symphony Orchestra Berlin, conducted by Dominic Baker on the um, concerto anyway. Now, Kapusin, he's uh, born in what is modern-day Ukraine. It was Ukraine when he was born, too. Um, but he spent most of his time in Russia. Now, this is the uh, Soviet era. So when Ukraine and Russia were really sort of the same place, they were the Soviet Union. Um, so he studied in uh, Moscow, and he spent most of his life in Russia. And he writes – he's really famous for writing jazzy pieces in a real jazz idiom. He's often referred to as the Russian, or I guess the Ukrainian, Gershwin. Mm. But uh, yeah, and sometimes he does kind of sound like that. Yeah. Um, he's really appealing, but his um, melodies aren't as memorable, say, as Gershwin's. Gershwin had that real gift for melody. But nevertheless, it's really interesting. Now, what he really did is he had, um, he was very aware of jazz music, and he was also familiar with, uh, you know, symphonic or... Uh, classical form and he tried to meld the two which i guess gershwin was starting to do but he he died pretty young and uh Kapusin really does that anyway this is on the capriccio label and this is an ongoing series i read an interesting quote from him because he did play in jazz ensembles Kapusin or dupree yeah, which one Kapusin. okay so he regarded himself as a composer rather than a jazz musician. Right. And this is his quote. I was never a jazz musician. I never tried to be a real jazz pianist, but I had to do it because of the composing. I'm not interested in improvisation. And what is a jazz musician without improvisation? All my improvisations are written, of course, and they became much better. It improved them. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting insight into what you will hear on uh, his Yeah, and, uh, and that does kind work. of sum up what you hear. Now, here's the thing. Music like this is going to sound better if it sounds improvised. And not all classical musicians can do that. Mm. You know, but Dupree can. He's almost the ideal sort of interpreter of this music. I've never heard anybody play this this well, except for may maybe Stephen Osborne, but he never played the concertos. He played a lot of um, solo piano pieces. Mm. Uh, Marc-Andre Hamelin played these as well. Uh, or not these, but um, he's played Capustin's music as well. But I don't feel like he got the uh, the jazz idiom as well as Dupree does. Anyway, let's talk about uh, Capustin a little bit. He spent his youth in the dictatorial grip of Stalin's USSR found himself in Moscow at the beginning of the 21st century and remained faithful to himself throughout the decades. And I think he died when in 2020. Oh, he just died two mm. years ago. Most of his works are stylistically related to jazz and skillfully combine its elements with the classical music tradition from Bach to Prokofiev and Stravinsky. And in fact, we're going to hear a lot of Prokofiev <laughs> and Stravinsky, especially in these works on this album. One thing though, yeah. I think you might need like a your little Pez dispenser of Ritalin to get through these works because, <laughs> man, things change really quickly. They do, in these yeah. pieces, the tempo change-ups and... Please, the YouTube generation will just eat this up. Come on, it's perfect for you. Yeah, it's, it's perfect, yeah. Yeah, it's really perfect for our times or even maybe for younger people than us. I mean, mm -hmm. it kind of kept me... Uh, kept my heart beating, let's just say that. <laughs> for sure. Maybe you'll want to play this if I'm on my deathbed. It'll give me another few years or something, you know? <laughs> 
Anyway, he composed six piano concertos. We heard the fourth last year, and uh, we're going to hear the fifth now. Now, the fourth was a really uh, jazzy work, but the fifth is not. Okay, so it's a little different. It does have jazzy elements in it, though. Um, by the way, Frank Dupree, the pianist on this recording, was trained as a drummer. Okay. But devoted uh, himself fully. Sense. Yeah, it does make sense. He devoted himself fully to the wide range of the classical piano repertoire at the same time. People with this kind of talent, I tell you, man, I would have been happy just to play the piano. <laughs> he has a special enthusiasm for the music of the 20th century, and it shows here. He gets the idioms, the jazz idiom, the Prokofiev, you know, machine rhythm idiom, and Stravinsky's kind of like, you know, rhythms exceptionally well. And the drumming, I, I could see, probably helped him a lot. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's talk about this concerto number five, very different from number four, which was really very jazzy. Uh, this one kind of was more like Prokofiev to me, or had more of that in it. It's a 20-minute single movement, but it has uh, separate sections, so um, it can be heard as a four-movement work. The jazz elements are heard in the first time of the orchestra briefly at the 19-second mark. There's a thundering bass octave on the piano at the 39-second mark when he enters. That's a great entry. There's a drum kit in the orchestra, too, uh, giving the work its jazzy rhythm. When the drums aren't playing, the piano plays more in classical mode with figuration and rapid arpeggiation. Judging from the lively first theme, the piece is going to switch between jazzy rhythms, classical speed, and uh, popular tune-type melodies. So it's like a multi-hybrid mm. work. It's nice in a way because one of the things I loved about – I shouldn't talk about – Early postmodernism. Now we think about postmodernism, we think of all the, the horrible things that are happening now. <laughs> but early postmodernism in the arts just kind of combined these things that really didn't belong together and put them together. And we accepted it because of the world that we lived in at the time. And I think uh, that's what's happening here. We're just so used to things like colliding with each mm -hmm. other. And all of these, uh, th this hybrid work works really well. There's a quiet section starting in the second minute whose uh, figuration and string accompaniment remind me of the early 20th century, particularly of the strings in Stravinsky's mm. Firebird at certain points of that score. If you think of the Stravinsky Firebird, the Cordovald, right before that, there's a, this beautiful string line. And uh, this section here reminds me of that. At 3 minutes and 38 seconds, there's a Gershwin-like piano theme accompanied by a drum kit, but it gives way quickly to cascading classical figuration. The material changes quickly, perhaps revealing the constant distractions of life in 1993, when the piece was written, or the uh, 20th century in general. The orchestration of this piece is really interesting, with a lot more timbral coloring than you'd expect, though not quite as much of the uh, excess of the early 20th century. At the 6 minute and 40 second mark, we change sections to a lento, tempo so this is like a new movement the material has a light jazz lilt peeking through the classical sounding lines uh, you almost want this to decide whether it's a classical or jazz piece but that's us with our modern separation of the genres wanting that Capuz mm. is saying this all belongs together and it certainly goes together in his head and in this work yeah, why should the two genres be separated they would seem to be very different this is composed by the way Kapusin, another thing Kapusin said about his music, you won't hear a note of improvisation in it. Everything is written down. Yeah. So it can't be considered jazz, but he uses the jazz sound in his composing. Kapusin really is the ideal adult music podcast composer. Just So we have the <laughs> ideal album for the first album. Mm. Now we have the ideal composer because uh, he's combining the two worlds. He's got classical and jazz. Yeah. That's what we're doing. 
Yep. We are the podcasting Capustans. <laughs> <laughs> At uh, the 10 minute and 12 second mark, there's a start to a new section, the Allegretto. And this is played with a drum kit and has a funky groove to it, if you can believe it. Yeah, it does. Uh, That's funky, what I wrote too. Yeah. Funky classical orchestral music. Oh, boy. Well, it's, it's possible because mm. he does it here. You know, that kind of surprised me. It was like a nice surprise too. The orchestration is interesting here too with the very unfunky flutes punctuating the material along with the other wind instruments. Piano lines twinkle in the high end in the 12th minute, then get into some syncopated jazzy lines. There's a dramatic fortissimo passage toward the end of the 13th minute that gives way to shuddering strings that quieten and make room for the piano cadenza halfway through the 14th minute. This is highly classical in its rapid figuration and work with climbing chords. At the 15 minute 30 second mark, I hear Prokofiev's mechanical rhythm in the piano playing. Then the 16 minute mark, we suddenly snap into a rapid swinging rhythm in the right hand line. At the 17 minute 30 second mark, the piano playing turns to a decidedly late 19th to early 20th century romantic style. At around uh, 18 minutes and 20 seconds, we're back to the jazzy rhythm. It breaks up. And there's so many varying elements of the past in this part of the cadenza that it conjures up many different memories of music listening for me. It's almost like I'm dying and I'm hearing all the music I heard <laughs> yeah. before, before my last breath, all passing before my ears at the same time. <laughs> That's kind of what I thought about. Uh, the piece goes into a full-on approach to the end with 1930s Hollywood grandeur with one final piece of piano figuration before reaching the final chord. What I would say about this piece is that um, – what's that thing that Elon Musk wants to – he wants to give you that brain implant? What is what is that thing called? <laughs> I don't know. Ah, oh, man. I can't remember the name of it now. You, you don't need that if you listen to this piece. <laughs> at least yeah. at least you don't need any music element to it. I can't remember that thing. He wants to implant it in people's heads. Uh, anyway. Tracks two through four, concerto for two pianos and percussion. Now, there is, of course, a famous Bartok work for two pianos and percussion, but this is much different than that. The players on this are Adrian Brendel on piano. Please, no relation to the Alfred Brendel, the famous English pianist. This is a German pianist. And he spells his name L-E at the end and not E-L. Meinhard Obigene on the drum set and Franz Bach on percussion. This first movement is rather odd. The pianos are playing jazzy lines, but the percussion are playing in contrasting rhythm. Uh, they occasionally snap into the same rhythm, but then go off in their same direction again. The percussion eventually disappears, leaving space for the two pianos to play together. The material livens up at the 2 minute 20 second mark with the return of the percussion. The pianos, one playing a swing-like rhythm and the other syncopated chords, sound really dense. There's really a lot going on rhythmically at the same time in this movement. And sort of like in a Bach fugue, you sort of have to take a back seat in your head to follow them all or just let the whole thing hit you as it's played. At 5 minutes 20 seconds, a new section starts with a little hiccup in the rhythm. The rhythm suddenly straightens out at around 5 minutes and 45 seconds. A quiet wandering section of the pianos is heard at the 7-minute mark, and the piece gets into a jazzy rhythm and ends suddenly and unexpectedly on an unresolved harmony. The second movement, Largo. The pianos here play a meditative, hazy, nighttime melody as the drums accompany with brushes. The melody has a 1930s or 40s American popular song feel to it. So that would be kind of in a jazz vein, mm -hmm. the, like the popular music of that time. 
By the 1 minute and 50 second mark, one piano is playing a theme while the other decorates with rapid figuration. At the 2 minute and 10 second mark, it's off to the races with dazzlingly fast scales by the one piano, while the other plays bass and chords. The drum set sets a rapid rhythm on the ride cymbal, and we slow down at 3 minutes and 50 seconds for a lighter section. The music lightens up to the end with hypnotic swirling lines by the fifth minute. Third movement, Allegro Impetuoso. There's a loud, stunning attack on the piano chords for the opening, followed by intricate rhythmic material that changes after brief sections. I'm hearing some jazz influence here and a lot of Prokofiev mechanicism in this movement. The sudden quieting at 2 minutes and 51 seconds is just one of the amazing sudden changes in mood we hear throughout this piece and album. It's brief. By the third minute, we're back to the rapid figuration. There's a pretty metallic percussion section at about the 3 minute and 45 second mark. Syncopated driving jazz rhythm in the fourth minute brings in the drum kit to accompany for the repeat of the material. The rhythm builds to the end where it ends forte. Okay, the last piece, Sinfonietta for piano four hands. And that's all. This was originally an orchestral work, and the arrangement for the piano four hands has become popular with piano duos all over the world, and it's heard mostly in that form. Anyway, the other pianist is it's Frank Dupree again with Adrian Brendel. There's an overture, the first movement. Uh, has a syncopated jazzy feel to the piano's opening chord-based line. Uh, there's a lot going on between the four hands, but it's all cheerful. Crisp, clear, close sounds on the piano. It comes across fully dimensional on the recording. A second more melodic but equally cheerful theme starts at around a minute and 23 seconds. The rhythm is taut and propelled by repeating bass notes. There are a lot of repeated notes in the movement and some pretty impressive virtuosity too. The movement has a combined feel of jazz and Prokofiev in his mechanical rhythm period. Movement two, slow waltz, larghetto, moves at the speed of a sati gymnopédie and has a hazier quality to it. That's a famous piano work by Sati. Look it up on your streaming service. You know them. They're famous. The melodic themes are muted and introspective. There's some pretty intriguing harmony in the third minute of the piece, right up to the tolling end in the bass. Third movement, intermezzo, played allegretto. Has a syncopated jazzy rhythm to the opening. A highly percussive movement with hammered out repeated notes propelling the rhythm. There's a more melodic theme starting around the 50-second mark, and I can hear why this piece was so appealing <laughs> in its forehand piano guise, mm. but it sounds really difficult to play. A little Gershwin-y here. Yeah. Dupree and Brendel seem to pull out all possible detail, though, and again, the rhythm is taut. By the two-minute mark, we're back at the repeated note bass rhythm, and with brief diversions, this remains till the end. The fourth movement, Rondo is played presto. It has a very fast rhythm with a jazz feel in the upper melody, though the rhythm doesn't swing. Capuzin kind of gives this an old-timey jazzy feel with a rapid bass note chord kind of stride feel to it in the bass, trading with uh, Capuzin's favored repeated note-generating rhythm. There's a more muted section at 2 minutes and 25 seconds or so, continuing the rhythmic feel. Midway through the third minute, the movement has gained a volume and rhythm, and familiar themes lead to the end, which has rapid, repeated thematic flourishes in the high end of the keyboard. The recording is very clear, captures the piano sound well. Dupree is a virtuosic pianist with a large variety of touches, getting a good feel in all the genres. He's actually a pre- pretty incredible in this repertoire with his virtuosic ability and feel 
a very authentic feel for all the styles in Kapustin's music. Kapustin cycles through and manages the quick changes of mood expertly. Whatever you think of Kapustin's music, ingenious integration of musical styles, or simply pastiche, I don't think this is pastiche at all. It's certainly appealing and continues to draw musicians who want to play it, which is a sign that his music is in a healthy state for the future. The world needs music like this now. This is music that could easily draw a younger audience just because it's kind of like YouTube for the concert hall or something <laughs> like that. It just changes so quickly. It's, maybe it's like TikTok. <laughs> you, know, you, you don't need a long attention span to listen to these works, but they are complex and you will get... Uh, I don't want to say an education because I'll chase people away, but you will you will get a little challenge out of it or a thrill. It's exciting for sure. You've got these classical forms and other influences with mostly jazz elements and stylings, but the rhythmic and mood changes within any movement are many and sudden. So <laughs> for the short attention span or get yourself some uh, Ritalin and uh, listen all the way through. Uh, still, despite that kind of quirkiness, the piano parts are virtuosic and yeah. impressive in creativity. And uh, Dupree shows that he's got the technique and flair to pull these off with right. style at a high speed. Yeah, I, I think it's exciting music. Apparently, there's a lot more of his music out there to uh, be explored. Uh, from a lot of it's on the Capriccio it, so. label. This is yeah. an ongoing series. I think we're going to hear all six uh, piano concertos eventually. And, you know, who knows, too? I mean, I grew up and I was listening to jazz going back historically. So right. I wanted to know, you know, the music going back. And so growing up in the 80s and going back exploring, you know, swing and bebop and still filtered through my American music experience. But right. how did jazz sound to you know, people in other countries from different eras before all modern media and, you know, free yeah. access to all styles of music. So what would uh, jazz sound like to Soviet ears back when it was really hard to listen to this music and how you would you interpret it? it probably completely differently. And I think it was always freeing, though, you know, like hmm, people heard yeah. it as something you know, yeah. liberating. So, so putting that into your structure of music and then creating, you know, something new, even if it's completely written, but inspired by improvised music and music that was composed of different elements from a different place, you're going to get something completely interesting and new. And that's what you get here. So I'm really entertained by listening to these recordings, the, the previous one we talked about in this one as well. Yeah, the, the previous one was more jazzy, though. So if you're interested in the mm. jazz element, you want to go for the previous one, Piano Concerto Number 4. Uh, there's also, Frank Dupree plays uh, Capustin's Piano Trios, and uh, <laughs> they're all very jazzy. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> yeah. like a jazz trio, really. Interesting. All right, and jazz trios and jazziness is a good transition into the yeah. jazz program because we've got a trio of trios yeah. tonight, and uh, they're all quite different. And from different places, but we're going to end up back in the U.S., but uh, we're going to take a few detours. Well, we'll stay close to start out and go to our northern neighbor of the U.S., Canada. And yeah. actually, we'll go to uh, Quebec with our first trio here and the wonderful pianist, lady pianist here, Lorraine Desmarais. And she's got a new recording out. This is on Analecta record label, Street Beat. Sweet. 
Mm. How about that? This came out at the end of January. And so, you know, I like to... It kind of sounds like it's going to be a hip-hop album with that title. <laughs> yeah, be sweet. Yeah. There's so many great pianists in all these uh, different countries, but we don't get to hear them really recognized enough in U.S. jazz. So I'm always looking for new players. And I've got, you know, two tonight that I didn't know much about, including uh, Lorraine Demaray. But I'm really excited about what I found in these first two recordings. Anyway, Demaray was uh, born in Montreal. She earned a Bachelor's of Music and uh, also a Master of, of Music in Classical Piano. And then yeah, she, you could hear that on this album, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, I was at the uh, University de Sherbrooke. And then she also studied at McGill University and later took lessons from Kenny Barron in New York. Wow. Can't get a better teacher than that. Right. And she's also been influenced by Chick Corea and Oscar Peterson. And that's all going to come through in her playing. Uh, she's performed with world-renowned jazz artists, including Chick Corea, Oliver Jones, Joe Lovano, and many others. Paquito de Rivera, I should mention, because there's a tune dedicated to him. Kenny Wheeler. And uh, trumpeter Guido Basso used to play with the um, Rob McConnell Boss Brass Big Band. I got to meet him once when I was up in Toronto at a jazz uh, little festival when I was in university. So that was kind of a highlight. Anyway, looking at her discography, uh, it's not easy to find all of her recordings, uh, but she seems to have about a dozen albums as a leader, including a big band recording that I want to find and have a listen to as well. And so in addition to being a pianist, she's also a really good composer. And so here, this work kind of celebrates the St. Lawrence Riverway. So if you're from uh, New York, like I am, have been up into Canada and Montreal. That's where my ancestors came through after they rode the boat from France and made their way down into the U.S. And you go up through the Great Lakes and the Thousand Islands and all of that kind of landscape up there. And so those are reminiscences of those landscapes that are surveyed here. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So in this jazz trio, with all of her original compositions, We've got also Camille Bellil on drums and Alec Walkington, which is such a great name for a bass player. Because, yeah, because they're uh, walking, walking all over that yeah. bass. So oh, let's dig right into these original compositions. The first track, Orange Brulee. Yeah. And it's a medium swing tune. It's a really happy melody. Demarie comes right in with the tune, has two 16-bar sections with a repeating melody idea at the start of each uh, which she connects into some Oscar Peterson-like runs up and down the keyboard yeah. uh, with a flair uh, and some syncopated phrases and chords. There's a different eight-measure bridge section that follows and then another softer eight-measure chord section that builds up to the solos. Walkington uh, switches up between walking and snappy syncopated lines. <laughs> and Demare is up first for a solo, incorporating ideas from her melody, nice swing feel, fluid lines, and chiming notes as well oh beautiful tone yeah yeah she's really, really nice like uh, touch there uh walkington gets a solo too uh relaxed feel good melodic connection in his ideas then demoray and belil trade fours for a round with tasty drum ideas they go around the melody sections once more with a little extra repeat of the last part into some drum fills and a cool unison piano and bass line to wrap it all up yeah, she's got kind of like a pastel kind of tone to it. It's yeah. really nice. I, yeah, really, really good pleasure to listen to. Track two, 
Vos Saint-Germain, and it is a waltz, but it's fast and kind of flowing. Demaris sets it out solo with an eight-bar intro, and then bass and Belion brushes join in on the melody, which seems to be a 36-measure theme. Uh, lush chords, sustained ringing and rolled figures, and syncopated soft chords mixed with runs in Demaris' hands. It has a nice gentle motion to it. They go around again into improvisations from Demaret with some emphasized triplet lines and ringing alternating chords and runs. Walkington gets a bass solo with nice melodies again and a syncopated push to his playing. And then Demaret returns for some more ringing improvisations into the first section of the melody to a slowed down ending. Yeah, so you, you mentioned uh, Oscar Peterson. You hear that on the uh, the scales. And she, mm. she also puts in this really nice sheen that she gets with the pedal, too. She's got, yeah. It's really just all beautifully judged. Really everything stylized and, I don't want to say measured, but uh, you know, with the right pedal effects and the right sustain on everything. It sounds really classy. Yeah, listeners who listen to this podcast like, probably are aware that I'm really drawn to timbre in general. Mm. You know, so a beautifully produced sound is really going to draw me in yeah. more than anything virtuosic, you know. And track three, we've got the street beat. And Belial gives a four-bar intro, and the street beat turns out to be a funky six-beat feeling kind of thing. Huh. I guess you could count it in a slower three, too, but it's got that subdivided thing. Yeah. Uh, Walkington lays down really funky bass grooves under Desmarais' melody that starts bluesy and has chords moving in steps all over the place. <laughs> You'll yeah. be following it along. Uh, there's a repeating 12-measure section and then a contrasting modulated 16-bar section with piano improv ideas on the second half before we get a repeat of that first bar 12 section. Demare takes a solo with great bluesy and funky ideas here, changing up to more chiming things on the contrasting section. Abilil gets to fill in some drums for an 8-bar solo over repeated chord figures, and they go around all these sections again to a sudden ending. Track 4, Promenade de la Mer. And here Demare starts it with a four-bar piano intro of a rhythmic left-hand figure into chords. The bass and drums join in, bass taking her rhythmic figure and Belial giving it a straight rock ballad kind of beat to it. Uh, the melody seems to be like 28 measures that Demare builds in waves of softly rocking chord figures. Uh, her solo is very expressive, showing a soft touch in rising runs into the high register and then powerful building tides of chiming chords. Uh, at the end, it comes down soft and Walkington's ostinato stops and just rings out as it goes away. Yeah. And track five... Le Président M. Chick. Yeah. <laughs> the President loves Chick. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering, who, who, does she mean Justin Trudeau? I mean, what is she? <laughs> I don't who, know. Who, who is that? President? My, the know. Chick, obviously Chick Korea here, though. Yeah, we got that part. Mm. This one's got a really driving swing tempo. Uh, the tune's built around a 16-measure modal harmony sequence. Now they come right in on the melody, and from the 11th bar, things get tricky with a really fast syncopation with the bass. Uh, Belial takes over the drums until bass and piano return uh, into alternating chords that build up the tension. Uh, the length is a little extended there in that section, and then we're off and running with Demore improvising ideas over the pattern. She can really connect lines well to build melodies, gets into some big dense chord ideas with driving rhythms for a while, before building up right-hand rhythmic figures into extended ideas. Belial gets up to trade eighths in some more playing over chord vamping. Uh, they connect it back 
to another round of the melody with the tricky drum section and alternating chords to a playful ending. Yeah, I should mention uh, Justin Trudeau is the prime minister, not the yeah. <laughs> president, so that's got to be somebody else. Yeah, I don't know. not sure. Trek 6 Jam Session. And, well, they do uh, let loose on this one. Demare starts it out with some rising two-hand figures. Bass and drums kick in for some synced-up push into a piano run and some tinkles on the piano. Then Walkington gets a fast three-beat ostinato going with a clicky drum beat added. And Demare plays some snappy rhythmic melody figures. Suddenly, things are off on a furious swing beat with walking bass. And Demare stretches out into some improvisations, into more of the previous snappy figures as the groove changes up. The tempo breaks up and Demare plays percussive chords into waves of notes over free drumming. It gets a little delirious and seems to want to form into a kind of rubato ballad before more dissonant waves and drumming take over and then fade. Then Demare gets a bluesy and funky groove going for the drums and bass to join in. Uh, she jams over it with changing modal ideas and harmonic exploration. Piano drops out and the drums fade away for a freeform solo from Walkington. He's in no hurry at all with climbing lines and some triplet ideas, finishing up with some fluttering fingers. Then he returns to the three-beat ostinato we heard earlier. We get a repeat of that section and the fast walking swing as a new extended section for Demaray to improvise on, uh, working up to a lot of dissonant percussive chord ideas and some rolling figures before a final bit of the snappy rhythmic melody and some skittering and ringing touches and Bilio's drum ending. It's a lot of fun, and you can finally start to see the shape of what's going on once you get to the end, as you get little sort of uh, restatements of things you've heard before. Track seven, Paquito, and I'm going to sim this one's for Paquito de Rivera, who she's played with before, and so it's a little Latin-y tune. And Demare starts it with rhythmic alternating piano chords for four bars, bass and drums join in for another round. The intro goes on with some busy bass and then piano figures into a drum break. Belial has a nice Latin groove working with Walkington under Demare's melody. I'm not sure about the construction of this song, but it seems to be like a really long, I couldn't pick out any repeating segments. So I think it's like a 50 measures of uh, composition. Uh, it's really all about the cool Cuban rhythm figures, though, that Demare spices it with. Uh, there's a clean short break into another round for her to improvise, and she mixes in speedy runs with really percussive chords and tricky rhythmic ideas. They reset with the intro chord idea for eight measures for Belio to work up the drums, and then take it around the melody section again with some final Cuban rhythmic grooving and a speedy punctuated finishing line. Track eight, Alarm vers la fleuve. Yeah. So... At dawn, towards the river. Now listen closely on this one. Uh, Demare starts it with delicate, repeating rhythmic figures ringing high on the piano. Belial adds light dancing cymbals, and there's a strange high, I think bowed bass, kind of, I want to say atonal, but not matching the harmonies, yeah. very faintly in the background. I, I got the images of like birds flying over the river, like, seagull calls or something like uh, that you'll barely it's hear it's got to be the bass really because yeah they, yeah you know maybe up on the bridge like uh right. bowing or something and now you've been put into this kind of little trance with the slow beat feel from the piano rhythm but suddenly we get kind <laughs> of a pop beat jump in with the bass and drums and uh, rhythmic lower piano chords too but now the new rhythm it feels like there's a skip in the record 
because the new meter is, uh, I think, 7, 8. So mm. it jumps you ahead, missing that last beat you would be feeling in the subdivision of the 4 from before. So it's kind of a, a cool little uh, rhythmic trick there. They go around getting used to the new groove, and then Walkington is up for a gentle and deep bass solo. Demare takes over with ringing, but connected solo lines of pretty melody. She works up into really chiming, exciting chords, continues with more fast runs into more chiming ideas. Then it comes down into soft lower register piano chords and an outro of high chimes that are like the intro with more of that faint bowing string sound and a final upward piano trickle. And that's it. So I found Demaray is to be a really virtuosic and classy piano player. You can tell she's absorbed Kenny Barron, Chick Corea, Oscar Peterson, but she's got her own style too. And her compositions are fresh and interesting. We get some hard swinging, straight rock beats and funky grooves, some modern modal and more adventurous harmonic exploration, and Latin grooves too. Her solos are inspired with connected melodic ideas. She has a light and smooth flow when she wants it, but she can really hammer out percussive playing too. And Belial and Walkington fit all the grooves and styles just right, and the synergy of the trio is great. You know, I, I had a funny experience with this album because I came away from it thinking, oh, it's really nice. I liked it, you know. Mm. But yeah, I went on to the like the next album. And I kept uh, referring to the uh, the other player as, as her. And I mm. realized that I was still thinking of, yeah, I had to take a step away because I was still thinking of this album, you know, learning Desmond mm. So it made a bigger impression on me, like deeper down than I had realized when I listened mm. to it. And actually, I really love it when that happens. So I'm going to have to... I'll probably have to get this one and uh, yeah, listen to it a few more times. Right. Anyway, it's got a light, like French type of sound, and it's it's uh, some of the tracks are light, sunny, and fun. But uh, the album has some uh, more rhythmic workouts as well, like mm. you said, with a rougher tone to them. Uh, I was drawn to her Desmarais' warm, appealing tone, and she has shimmering scales. And I think she knows that uh, her scales are an asset because she displays the skill really often on this album. <laughs> mm. That's an Oscar Peterson uh, sort of styling too. Uh, she plays a lot of repeating patterns in her compositions, uh, using those to build further with the harmony, which I rather appreciated as a big classical listener. It kept me listening, and her trio is supportive. They solo well themselves. And I think this went deeper than I thought when I first heard it. Mm. So, uh, listener beware. You might get addicted to this one. <laughs> yeah, check it out. Uh, she's really wonderful pianist and had a long career, but more people should hear her uh, recordings. And I'm going to seek out some of the earlier ones as well. There's a Christmas one. I'm always uh, interested in oh. those. So maybe I'll give that a listen. Yeah, that like could be good this, for this year's The Christmas. next holiday season. Yeah. yeah. All right. Another player that I didn't know uh, much about, maybe I had seen his name in passing, but this was a new recording came out at the end of February. Uh, Grot Records. Actually, <laughs> that was a, the listing. I'm still not sure uh, because I found out later that it's also Gad Records too. It's one of it's these European <laughs> small it, labels. It could be a different label in a different location. You don't know. That's possible too. And then yeah. oftentimes the distributors are different. Anyway, yeah. we're going to go back to the Czech Republic for Emil Witzlitzki and his new recording that's out. Live in San Francisco. And now you had an interaction with this guy this week, right? <laughs> We've had a lot of going back and forth. Well, of course, I was searching. You know, this came out on the new releases, and so I started looking. I couldn't find any information at all 
<laughs> about this recording. <laughs> so I got in touch with him. I'll get to that in a moment. Anyway, if you don't know Miklitsky, he was born 1948 in Olomouc, former Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. He played piano from a young age, but graduated from university with a degree in mathematics. Yeah. Well, that's not so far away yeah. from music, really. Yeah, music is yeah. math. Well, it's a lot of things. It's not just math. Yeah. <laughs> he won some jazz soloist awards at European festivals and competitions. And then in 1977, he was awarded a four-year scholarship to study composition and arrangement with Herb Pomeroy at Berklee College of Music in Boston. And he continued studying composition after that. He's played around the world with jazz ensembles of various types. Uh, as a composer, his music as kind of a combination of expressive elements of modern jazz and also tonalities of Moravian folk songs. He composes straight-ahead modern jazz as well as chamber and orchestral works, and at times his music uses a combination of classical and jazz performers. And so you will pick up on some of those folk elements in this music. And if you want to hear more folk elements... Tune in for next week because we're going to go back a couple hundred years <laughs> to oh, wow. some more uh, Moravian folk ideas. In, am I uh, am I going to do that too? I got no. That's check. what you're doing. Yeah, oh, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to check my recordings here. Anyway, as I said, there was uh, very little information about this other than it was released. So I got in touch with Emil, and uh, he was very helpful in sending information about this and his other recordings. And he also has a really good sense of humor because he asked us if we also produced adult films. <laughs> so, adult movies, he yes, said, right? Movies. I'm not yeah. sure. But uh, anyway, if anyone's wondering, uh, we're still just working on the adult audio only at yeah. this time. But I think if we get into films, I've got my first title. Since yeah, yeah. we're in Japan, that's going to be Mighty Mike Meets the Maiko. Oh, that's actually pretty clever. And <laughs> yeah, I, pretty I wouldn't clever. mind meeting them myself at, yeah. this, at this point. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, turns I'll, out... I'll this have to go to the gym if I'm going to live up to that role. I don't know. This recording was uh, is not a new recording, uh, but it's never been released before. It was actually recorded in 2012. That's a long time ago. Frank huh? Hanny's Jazz Club. And in addition to Emil on piano, we've got Scott Amendola on drums and John Schiffler on bass. And as of now, the recording's only out uh, electronically, but uh, Emil says that uh, GAD Records in Poland may issue a CD in the future. And I hope they do, because this is a really exciting live performance and really good sonics for a live recording. We've got mostly Emil's original compositions with a couple of jazz standards. And we're going to start out with one of his originals, Halloween. And this one's a medium swing, kind of post-bop sounding tune. The main melody section is 16 bars, nice harmonies and dense chords, but nothing too scary like Halloween. Good snappy bass lines from Shiflet under the piano. Then there's a kind of 10 measure bridge section. It's mostly rhythmic chords and some cool left hand piano bass lines and a big upward run of notes. Then we get the 16 bar section again. Viklitsky is up for his first solo, which he keeps the same form for, going around about three times, and you can get a nice taste of his style here. He's very rhythmic, lots of percussive chords, synced up two-hand figures between speedier runs, and I like how he pulls back in phrases from the melody to jump off on new ideas. He gets some bluesy hints in the second round, 
Uh, Shiflin gets a bass solo next, and Amandola drops out on the drums. He starts out with long, bendy notes on the bass, working into more throbbing melodic ideas with light backing from Viklitsky, and Amandola returning with light hi-hat timekeeping. And Viklitsky gets trades with eights uh, with Amandola on drums, giving him the first or second halves of the 16-bar section to solo for a couple rounds. The crowd really likes it, and I really like how the drums sound on this live recording. They go around the melody section once more to finish it up. Yeah, I mentioned the drum sound too. It's, it's they're really full. I said the bass yeah. drum especially is really full. Yeah, yeah. On the recording, I'm also kind of curious about the title Halloween. It's a really an American thing. It's something we yeah. made into something. You know, I'm kind of wonder if you picked yeah. that up from being in America States, for a while. Be, yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of wondering how that got to the uh, mm. Czech Republic. Maybe he'll let us know. And track two is kind of curious title too. Uh, Bird flew over. And this is a beautiful track. Actually, I liked it yeah. a lot. I was thinking one flew over the cuckoo's nest or... That, that the, came to the, mind, the too. Bird, I don't know. Uh-huh. Anyway, yeah. So Viklitsky starts it out solo with an eight-bar intro. Uh, bass and drums join in softly. And actually, it turns out that this whole tune is built around a really sweet eight-bar chord sequence that's minor and bluesy, but has a nice lifting or mood-lifting turns to the harmony in the third and sixth measures. Viklitsky gives us a couple rounds of the restrained and uh, melancholy melody before launching off into improvisations. He shows off light and ringing articulation with bluesy and snappy right-hand figures. Amandola and Shiflet shift gears and give it a double-time feel. Then Viklitsky gets just the right amount of space between his phrases to build up anticipation. There's a great climax in this tune, in the solo, right about three minutes and ten seconds, with these rising two-handed figures. They're synced up into some real high-register bluesiness. Someone in the crowd shouts out, yeah, (laughs) at the appropriate moment, and I agree. Uh, They bring it down softer, downshifting to the original tempo. Viklitsky has a great descending cascade to bring in a solo from Schiffler. He makes it snappy and bluesy, and then they go around the melody a couple times to a crowd-pleasing ending with some final emphatic chords and tinkles on the piano. I like it when the, the crowd can't con- contain themselves. They have yeah. to just sort of say something. I wish that would happen yeah. more in classical music, but at the end of the, of yeah, the work, the please. End, yeah. Only at the end. Even between movements, sometimes you get this big buildup at the end of a classical movement, mm. and then everybody just kind of sits there quietly. Like, it just doesn't feel natural to mm. me. You should Too much cheer for those two yeah. if it's really good. Track three here is Gone with Water, and Viklitsky starts it with a series of downward cascades of notes like water falling from higher and higher places, like you're looking up on some mountainside or something. Uh, he gets a six-note ostinato going that Shiflet joins in on. They work over that with 16 measures of chiming chords. Then Viklitsky gets us an eight-measure minor waltz melody with a very folk-like quality to it here. I could pick up on that. Uh, He goes around twice before improvising on it and finding all the bluesy implications in the right spots. His solo is a nice mix of more flowing melodic high lines, super funky and punchy chords, and bluesy licks. He brings it down soft for Shiflet to get a bluesy and funky solo with lots of snappy licks, and then he picks it up again on piano with more percussive bluesy jamming, and Amandola has lots of cool drum fills going on. They bring back the ostinato introduction and chiming chords into a few final runs of the folky melody. Track four is called Highlands, Lowlands. Here Viklitsky starts it out solo with sets of modulating ringing 
rhythmic figures before getting into tempo with a ringing rhythmic riff that the drums and bass join in on, and then it repeats. The meter seems to be 6-4, and the melody is a 16-measure construction, has chiming climax in the 11th bar, and comes down softer at the end of the phrase. They go around it a few times before Viklutsky works off into improvisations. He finds bluesy spots and really digs in with percussive rhythmic playing and ringing high register notes. Schlifflick gets a solo next, starting with some throbbing interval ideas into lines that dig down low and into repeated licks. Then Viklitsky returns with more percussive playing on rounds of the melody. Amandola getting lots of dancing cymbals behind. Uh, they take it into a bluesy vamp section over a bass ostinato with Viklitsky hammering away and Amandola mixing it up. Then they bring it down soft and take it out with a couple repeats of the final four measures of the melody. And the crowd approves. <laughs> Track five, love, oh love. This one, Vikuski starts out with some repeating and alternating minor ostinato 3-4 figures and downward trickles. Shiflet joins the ostinato, Vikuski works some ornamented improvisation and more trickles while Amandola gets the cymbals dancing. Then we get the minor folk sounding 16 measure melody. Another section of ostinato and trickles and another melody run. It modulates and Vikuski is off and running on a solo full of rhythmic excitement and percussive piano. They bring it down soft, and Amandola pulls out for a solo from Shiflet. He comes up with some complex rhythmic ideas and ends up in some throbbing notes and intervals. They make a reset with the ostinato and trickles again with some improvisations from Viklutsky that build in intensity, leaving gaps of anticipation into some very cool two-handed bluesy riffs. One more ostinato reset into a final run through the melody. Track 6 at Donau at Pressburg. Vikuski starts the longing minor intro alone, and Shiflet joins in subtly and then gets more ringing. The melody is a 16-measure construction with a lifting change to major in the 12th bar. Uh, they go around and around, Amandola joining in softly with brushes. The fun here is how this transforms from a mournful ballad and gradually gathers steam into a swinging and double-time feeling chug to mine all the bluesy implications out of the harmonies. A more great percussive playing, but some happy melody ideas and smooth-flowing sustained right-hand and ringing ideas, too. They soften it for a shiftlet bass solo and then get back into bluesy groove for some more piano jamming. Back to the simply stated slow melody on just piano and bass and a trickling ending from Fitzlitsky and the crowd cheers away again at this one. They're they're pretty uh, enthusiastic crowd. Yeah, it would have been a great so night really, to uh, be there. Yeah, that you don't hear the golf clap in this, you know, that you hear in a lot of jazz yeah, clubs. Yeah, they, kinda, they really have enthusiasm. Yeah, this is a good crowd. Track seven. Now we're going to go off from the originals to a Duke Ellington tune, Solitude. Everyone knows this one, and it's a really nice original arrangement of it here. They give a kind of uh, original anticipation building intro of repeated rising bass and piano lines with little piano sprinkles. Then Viklitsky releases the familiar melody, great ringing bass from Shiflet, and they bring back the little intro lick between phrases in the spaces. It picks up a bit of chug from Amandola's brushes and spots, but it kind of ebbs back. Classy phrasing and nice touch in the high register from Fiklutsky, but he adds a lot of excitement with punchy chords and bluesy licks in his solo. One more hint 
from the intro idea and a sudden soft piano figure into a solo from Shiflet that starts very intimately but then busts out with snappy accented melody phrases. There's a little riff reset and Viklitsky jams a bit over the final section of the melody into another start of the melody line, but they finish it up with repeats of the rising intro riffs. Yeah, very classy. Mm. Track eight, another original longing It's a solo piano, descending, trickling figures that start from higher up, makes an intro into a waltzing minor 16 measure melody that twists into major in the fifth measure and comes back again. Bass and drums join in on the repeat. And Vlitsky is going to take this to some different places. Again, he finds the bluesy implications and adds some delicate and ringing melodic figures. He can't resist digging in with great percussive chord builds-ups, and he rips out some really smooth runs in here too. There's a soft return to a melody snippet that gets Shiflet going on a bluesy bass solo ending in a big gliss up from a low note. They return to the melody for another couple runs with some extra harmonic color and a tasty, trickly playing at the end from Witzlitzki. And we're going to close out the recording with a Gershwin tune, Who Cares? Old Jazz Standard. And then give it an up-tempo swing treatment. Uh, Nice snappy right-hand figures in the melody. Uh, He launches right into a solo with lots of rhythmic energy and chiming high-register right-hand notes. Uh, His hand interplay is really great here. Shiflet is up next for a bass solo, mostly walks away with a few extra snaps in it. And then Viklitsky trades up eights with Amandola to get some drum soloing with tasty tom work. One more time around the melody into some final piano improvisation and fun little harmonically tense coda ending to finish it up. So it was a high energy night in San Francisco. Really good sound quality for a a live recording. Two standards with most of the tunes being Vitlitsky's originals. And you can really pick up on the folk flavors uh, in his melodies. And mostly they can take a short, simple melody eight or 16 bars and transform it into something really exciting over the performance of a tune. Uh, when he solos, Fiklutsky often finds the blues and injects rhythmic energy with percussive chords. He's always full of ideas and Amandola and Shiflet lock in very well and they follow the transformation of the tunes with kind of implicit communication of where it's going. The crowd had a great time and you will too if you give this one a listen. Yeah, this is a pretty exciting recording and I actually enjoyed the the depth that uh, Vic Leakey has in his uh, playing. Um, he he builds a lot on, I was kind of thinking of uh, the uh, Desmarais because she does something similar. He, he'll She'll build on like these repeating patterns and uh, he'll have like a motif that he'll build on and branch out from there and mm-hmm. uh he switches styles a lot too and uh sometimes mm-hmm. playing several at once i was thinking of the uh the repeating upward motif in solitude which kind of sounds classical to me right. along with the more lightly swinging theme that he you know in the mm. that he's playing so i i just noticed that as well it's pretty interesting there's a lot of creativity in his soloing once he gets going and often he'll get going because the accompanying bass and drums nudge him onward i noticed this too mm. like he'll be playing and then the other guys are like Pick up the tempo and he'll just go, he'll be right there with it. Sometimes it's him that picks them up. It's all pretty fascinating, all the, the communication between the three of them, right. uh, which is really right on the surface. I mean, you can kind of tell when it's happening. The, the bass always solos over a slowed down tempo. Did you notice <laughs> yeah, that? He always does, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah I was kind of some <laughs> okay, expected that after to a while. Mm-hmm. I guess he likes that. He's got a lot of space. Could be, to, yeah. To, yeah. But mm-hmm. I, I thought that was really interesting. 
Yeah, so they play well off each other, and you get the impression that the playing would be totally different if any of these musicians were changed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It would just have a completely different sound world. Mm. So this is something kind of unique with these three people there. It's a bit out of the ordinary, too, so I rather liked it for that. It was really interesting for that mm. all those reasons. Yeah, and we had a few email exchanges with Emil. He's got lots of other recordings that you can find on streaming. He especially recommends a recording that he did with American trumpeter Marcus Printup, and it's on a uh, Jazz at the Castle series from 2007. It's on the Swedish label Fog Arts, although I see it listed under Multisonic on Deezer. Maybe that's the distributor. And I strongly recommend a duo recording I sent he this sent me this to, one. Yeah, yeah. with bass clarinetist Pavel Hruby because in we 2020. Because we, we love, love bass the bass clarinet, clarinet yeah. so much. <laughs> it's called uh, Between Us, and it's on Amplion Records. And distributor must, seems to be Studio Svengali on streaming. So that's a really kind of intimate duo recording. Really nice. Although most of his recordings have been on these European labels right. uh, that don't get international distribution. but <laughs> They can't find a home. They just got to yeah. go from label to label. <laughs> but now it's the streaming age, and that's why we're here. That's what I yeah. do every day when I wake up really early and spend about an hour searching through all the new releases uh, from all corners of the globe. Does the globe have corners? I don't know. Ends no. of the earth. Let's, why why, let's why do they say that? You know, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, you know, is that like a flat earth thing? Like corners Could of the be. globe? What, what are they talking about? Too. Anyway, yeah. I'm always looking and I was really happy all, to all find All the curves of the globe, let's say that curves. way. <laughs> so there you go. Canada, Czech Republic, great pianists everywhere. But let's uh, return to the U.S. for the final trio, something completely different in approach uh, with a younger pianist who's making a big name for himself. And this is Julian Shore on... Tone Rogue Records, that's a good label name, and it is. Uh, just called Trio, because it's a piano trio. And if you don't know Julian Shore yet, he's making a name for himself, born in 1987 in Narragansett, Rhode Island. After starting piano lessons at a young age, he studied with educator Hal Crook as a teenager, and he got a full scholarship to Berklee College of Music, where he enrolled in the fall of 2005. And while he was there, under the mentorship of Danilo Perez, he performed in a young musician's ensemble in the Panama Jazz Festival, learning from Wayne Shorter, Brian Blade, and others. We get a Wayne Shorter tune or version of a tune on this recording. And since 2010, he's continued to appear both as a leader and a sideman in New York, where he's based, and playing internationally. Among his own recordings as a leader, his debut was Filaments in 2012, Which Way Now, 2016, and Where We Started in 2020. And here's his new one, Trio, Shore on Piano, Martin Nevin on Bass, and... Alan Midnard on drums. And Shore says of this recording, quote, A few months ago, Martin, Alan, and I went into the studio without much of a plan besides playing some tunes I like. We had a lot of fun, and it's nice to just record without expectations and see what happens and release it. I hope that spirit comes off in the music and that you enjoy listening. This spontaneous <laughs> spirit of working uh, mostly from, it seems like, you know, sketches of tunes and just seeing what happens spontaneously is what I think defines this recording. Something mm. going to be different from the previous two we just discussed. All right, we're going to start. Oh, there's another French word here. 
uh, lend me your pronunciation. Fayette album, which is yeah. an album leaf. Album so, leaf. Like a page in a book. Yeah, and I guess yeah. in classical music, this means a minor composed piece. Uh, well, it's, it's, lots a one, of these, it's a one-page piece that you wrote one page, like, for somebody. You know? Yes, that a composer yeah. wrote for uh, someone yeah. for some occasion. And anyway, this one is Alexander Scriabin. And uh, this is a really minor piece. It's a very yeah. pretty uh, harmonic sequence, but uh, it seems to be just four measures. But just <laughs> like we heard with um, previous recording, you can take a small snippet and take it some places. And so Shore gets it going with the rubato solo intro of this very short musical phrase. Uh, as I said, it seems like just four bars, but he gets it into a slow tempo for another round, and then the bass and drums join in for a few more, and they slow it down on the third time through. One more time at tempo, and then Nevin is up for a bass solo. His tone really rings out with clean attacks as he works up pleading lines into the upper register. And Shore is next for some improvisations, making flowing delicate lines and some rhythmically free phrases. Bernard is mixing up some textures with brushes underneath all that. Then Shore brings back the melody phrases and Nevin adds nice bass counterlines underneath that. They slow it down into a rubato and colorfully trickling solo ending from Shore. It's gentle and nice, and as I said, as we heard from Viklitsky's tunes earlier, getting a lot of musical expression starting with just a simple idea. Track two is Casa Oscura, so a dark house, I guess. I guess and this yeah. is from uh, Mark Turner, the saxophonist, his composition. It's a rubato intro with delicate synced bass and piano lines into piano figures that start to swell. Uh, Menard adds dancing cymbals and toms. At about 50 seconds or so, there's a pause and hesitated piano figure that take it into an Eevee clicky kind of Latin feeling beat. Menard and Nevin are locked into a tight groove, but Shore floats the melody with a soft touch over that for a dreamy atmosphere. They take an in-tempo break, but can still hear the faint counting out before Shore moves into improvisations. He has a light touch, and his free-flowing lines are smooth, ending in some more percussive chords before another section of more soft chords and rolling as the tempo becomes free and they continue on rubato, but reaching heavier chords with drum fills to an ending of piano trickles over ringing bass figures. We're going to get a Julian Shore original idea for composition unsaid a sparse and soft piano opening that has alternating notes that turn to chords under delicate piano figures that build and release harmonic tension after a minute the alternating chords move to more changing harmonies and nevin comes in with a solid bass note kind of feel uh, locked in with Shore's movement. Midnight sprinkles in cymbals, accents, and fills, and Shore's melody is, is spare rather than chordy. A clicky groove develops under Shore's sparse but rhythmic improvisations, and Midnard embellishes with fills as the push gets heavier. Shore gets into more weighty and accented chords as it approaches the sudden and then soft ending. Track four, there's two of these here. This is Skin One. I think it's built off an idea from the pianist Jerry Allen. This one will shake you up with the furious, busy <laughs> bass and drum action after the previous dreamier material. Yeah, it kind of lulled, lulled me out of my uh, <laughs> relaxed state there. Yeah. Like, What's happening here? For a bit, Nevin gets a six-beat ostinato going in the bass, but that will soon get morphed into more 
complex things and he's freed up from that. Shore launches speedy flowing lines over chords with spaces between his phrases. He connects ideas more in the middle register and the tempo breaks up until he gets a new rhythmic three-beat figure going and Nevin and Mednard build a new busy beat around it. Shore keeps the left hand going and adds a new bouncy rhythmic figure in his right hand as they approach the ending in just under two minutes. So it's a short piece. We're going to get a Tonino Horta, uh, the Brazilian guitar singer-composer tune, De Tom Pratom. And this one's a, gets like a slow waltz tempo and dreamy atmosphere. Uh, Nevin's anticipation of the downbeat, even at this tempo, gives it kind of a forward motion, though. Short treats the melody gently, but builds lush chords around it. Mednard has soft hits that mark out the beat. They have pauses that give it a sense of breathing, in the phrases before it continues. Nevin has a bass solo with a vocal pleading quality to his melodic phrases. He gets more push going into a solo from Shore that has softly floating, sometimes ringing and rolling ideas, showing off dynamics and a variety of touch in his piano playing. He works it into more of a rhythmic groove between his hands for a bit before some chiming melody to a soft ending. Track six is Skin Two another version of this Jerry Allen idea. Uh, this time there's a different light and metallic clinky three-beat drum groove to start and no bass. Uh, Shore introduces a short syncopated Latin sounding figure and adds other chord ideas between repeats of it. Nevin joins in on bass starting with an interval idea and working into an ostinato. They get a groove going with Shore working the Latin figure and then getting some busy bouncing chord ideas to another quick ending just over two minutes this time. And we'll get a standard Cole Porter's Everything I Love for track seven. So rubato but brisk solo piano start from shore, a gentle touch on the melody, but quickly shifting chords and a nice touch with little leading left hand bass lines. On the last phrase, Shore gives it more of a push and then Midnard locks in the tempo on tight hi-hat with Niven giving it a bouncy bass pulse. Shore floats freely over the busy bass, sometimes with more rhythmically snapping lines and chords, and Nevin rings out some solo bass before they take one more easy jaunt through the melody. Track 8, this is the Wayne Shorter tune, but it's actually kind of a traditional Irish folk song idea. That and you hear the Irish um, folk song melody, melody in there, in I can there, pull yeah. it out, yeah. And that's uh, She Moves Through the Fair. And... This is on, uh, I know he recorded this on, what was that one recent? Uh, Wayne, Wayne Shorter, you mean? Yeah. The, recorded this? Uh, what, the, one of the, the new ones? Covers, yeah. Eminon, is that it? Oh, is that is this on Eminon? Yeah, it is, I believe. Oh, wow. Anyway, okay. Mednard gives this a light, clicky, even drum beat, and Nevin plays ringing bass ideas under soft chord ideas from Shore, who then builds phrases of left-hand melody before moving to softer and higher melody and chords. They let him float solo for a while before Nevin returns with throbbing bass pulse, and Mednard adds a busier drum beat. Shore builds into some zigzagging ideas for a bit and phrases and chords. They give it a soft reset for a more delicate piano melody before starting a more clicky groove, this time for Shore to get more rhythmic over and add thicker chords. Midnard builds things up and down again a few times, and Shore builds to heavier percussive chords, and they take it out with a soft but rhythmic interaction to a fade out. And we're going to finish up with Unsaid 2, another Julian Shore 
piece, uh, this one sure starts with a repeating series of three notes that then resolve harmonically to a single note. Uh, Menard adds a clicky groove and Nevin adds a rhythmic bass riff idea to match Shore's sequence. It gets very hypnotic in a six-beat slow groove. Nevin morphs the riffs into new ideas, including some cool glisses and really high percussive plucks. Uh, he then gets lower and sparse as it quiets to the end. So, it's not totally amorphous, but definitely free-flowing in approach. The tune's really starting points for what kind of spontaneous interplay can come from this trio. And Shore seems very well suited for this environment. He has interesting chord voicings and soft and smooth articulation with a really light touch. His phrasing can float loose over tighter grooves underneath and explore and then connect ideas back without really having a specific endpoint, it seems, in mind. Uh, things go in interesting directions, and it will take your willingness to follow and concentration to get the most out of listening to this recording. Midnard and Nevin are sensitive players, adjusting to what develops, and the overall uh, sense of communication between the trio is impressive. I recommend it for listeners who like things a little bit on the freer and flowing side. Freer flowing? I thought, like, mellow, actually. Hmm, it's we'll got most of it has like a this late night uh, closing time vibe, you know, mm. where you're staring into your empty glass. <laughs> yeah, almost <laughs> before they, like now. Before yeah. they make you leave. <laughs> anyway, it's it's relaxing for the most part, and also well recorded. We have to say, uh, for me, the bass came up exceptionally well on the recording, mm. and and that's also because of the expansive tone the bass player gets. He's got this gigantic, big, fat tone. Uh, the piano has a full tone too, and the chords. This is, yeah, it's really recorded close, and it sounds really rich. I liked it a lot. Mm. The chords are all warm. There are a lot of ideas in the piano playing too, and I like the way he'll subtly reharmonize or change the voicing in the same harmony, like each time we hear it. It's it's really subtle, but you never really yeah. hear you hear the uh, the melody repeat, but it's never really harmonized in quite the same way. Mm. So I thought that was imaginative and very subtle too. I mean, a lot of people won't notice it if they're just kind of having mm. it in the background. I don't know. It's got a nice glow to it, so I yeah. thought it was nice. Yeah, I liked his uh, reharmonization of the. Well, he didn't yeah. reharmonize. He just kind of changed the voices. They're still the same chords, but he just kind of yeah, changed the subtle, way he plays subtleness them. in his playing. It's not uh, yeah. nothing showoffy, but um, the gentleness and yeah. um, sort of going with the flow and letting the ways of uh, taking this melody uh, uh -huh. in different directions. Uh, it's really yeah, kind of interesting. Take a few listens, I think, to get the most out of what's going on here. Yeah, so we had a lot of records tonight that had uh, that are going to require a bit of uh, repeated listening to really yeah, get a lot out of them. I think so. And they invite that. And that's always a good thing because there's always something new to discover. That's uh, that's a record that's worth buying because yeah. you you know this you, you know you're going to get something new out of it each time you listen. Hmm. And so there you have it. That's episode one oh six. Lots of uh, really cool keyboard things, and one might even say uh, crazy keyboards. Crazy keyboards? All right. Well, With we went to the keyboard museum in the we classical. Did. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Tonight, keyboard that's for museum. Sure. Yeah. Lots of uh, things there, and a little uh, trip to the uh, Czech Republic, and we're going to go back again next week. Oh, more to Czech Republic, huh? Well, yeah. We've got uh, the new Renitsky coming up. Oh, we do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. See that? 
Although that was um, Bohemian back then, wasn't it? I don't know. Anyway. It's hard to say. Yeah, I think it <laughs> was right. uh, Czech. And now we're going to hear from the... Uh, now, now that you Czech. said that, we're going to hear from Daniel. Because <laughs> yeah. he's always making sure we get our Renitsky facts right. Yeah. And we're going to hear Merrick conducting again, anyway, yeah, with volume five of uh, that really nice uh, recording. And uh, so I'm interested to give it a detailed listening. Right. We've covered all the previous ones until now. And in jazz, I'm going to go for some mixture of things that came out last month. I've got a flute recording. I got a vibes recording with piano and I've got a trumpet recording. So sort of some of my favorite sounding uh, recent releases. I can look forward to that. Yeah. Next week, we're finally getting to that uh, Caroline Shaw album, uh, The Wheel on Alpha mm. that I've been that I mentioned in January. I said, oh, we'll do this. And now it's the end of March and I'm finally getting to it. And um, we're going to celebrate uh, the uh, 400th anniversary of um, oh, wow. uh, Thomas Wilkes and uh, William Byrd's deaths next week with an album of their music too. 400 years. 400 years. Amazing. 1623 they died. Wow. Hmm. So all that to look forward to. If you want to uh, check out those recordings ahead of time, not too long after this episode gets published, I'll put up a playlist for that on Deezer and a link to it on Facebook so you can find it in one of those two places. And before we sign out, as always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo and our continual encouragement of improving our New York accents. We know we got to work on that, so we'll yeah. just keep working on those things. As well as... Uh, it's a good thing to be getting rid yeah. of, to be honest. <laughs> uh, the uh, previously mentioned podcasts, if you stick on this far in the podcast, you'll be sure to listen to the ending and you'll get a little snippet of a promo from each one and see if they sound interesting to you. If, to you. If so, do check them out uh, during the week. And remember, also find those links to the two recordings from John Krosnick's bands, The Charged Particles and The Lunar Octet. I think you'll like those Michael Brecker tunes and some Latin jazz. And that's it. Yeah, that is it. Yeah. So we'll see you again next week for episode 107. Uh, lots of new music and more good things to come this spring. So until then, keep listening and we'll see you again next time. Gerald Albright, Rhea Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Luke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that something came from Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, 
you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.